December 1981. In this episode, Chris Olson again joins me to talk about flight simulators. This time, military flight sims. And if you like technical discussions, stick around to the end where I have a detailed breakdown of how the Micropose flight simulators use some really clever display list hacking to keep the frame rate high. Also have the usual magazine coverage, a teeny bit of news about the XE Cart by Cart podcast, and a special guest contribution from Kevin Savitz looking at the Winter 1981 APX catalog. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 10, Hex. This is the final episode of 1981. Hard to believe that gone through all of 1981, or will after this episode. And I'm looking forward to 1982, because as I've said many times, I think starting 82 is when the sort of games that I remember start to come out. This episode, of course, is part 2A of the flight simulators. And it was just so much stuff that Chris and I talked about that I'm going to split part 2 into two parts. <laughs> so I debated whether to call it part 2 and part 3, or part 2A and part 2B, but I don't know. So... Part 2A it is. If you listen to some of the other podcasts, we've heard a lot of stuff about Kansas Fest. Wade had a great episode about Kansas Fest. I talked about it a little bit on the Antic podcast. Of course, my stuff. Hopefully you're not tired of Kansas Fest, but I do have a little bit of Kansas Fest stuff to talk about this time. I forgot to mention that when I was there, Wade gave me a couple analogs. He gave me analog issue number 13 and number 41. I definitely remember number 13. I had that one, or at least my original one's gone, but it's back now. Yeah, it's um, September, October 1983. Picture of the 1400XL on that cover. Kind of a stylized, I don't know, steampunky sort of 1400XL. So yeah, it'll be fun to look at that magazine and, you know, actually flipping through the magazines rather than the PDFs. And then issue 41 is much later. It's um, when the ST era, this is like April 86, the premiere issue of ST Log. So it's like a collector's one. So yeah, again, Wade, thanks a lot for that. I really appreciate those. And he also gave me a box copy of Flight Simulator 2 on disc which on the back it says it, it supports the 1450 XLD. And if you've not heard about the 1450 XLD, it was kind of this, the prototypes do exist, and I think there are a few out there in the wild, but it was sort of the next step of the XL line before the Tremels took over and killed all that stuff off and turned it into the XEs. But it was kind of an all-in-one unit, sort of the size of a 1200, or a little bit bigger than 1200 actually, because it had two built-in floppy drives. It had a speech synthesizer built in and a different memory management unit and stuff. It's the holy grail of collecting for the 8-bit era. But before we get to the end of Kansas Fest, I had a little feedback from a friend of the show, Kevin Lund, who said he'd been talking to Randy Kiddig and other folks on Atari Age, and that might it be possible to create some Atari version of Kansas Fest. And he said, with a combined audience of all three podcasts and possibly others, might there be enough Atari people out there with the right resources that uh, could possibly get started? He said, I know I'd go to something like that. I know you would, as would many other listeners. I think that might be better than crashing Kansas Fest each year. Though I like that you all did this year, you didn't talk much about specific Apple fan reactions to the Atari, though. Did you make any converts? So yeah, we did. Well, I certainly enjoyed Kansas Fest, and <laughs> I don't think I made any converts because they're like the you know the hardcore Apple people. But that's not to say they aren't weren't interested in the Atari. Nor I think would they not be objecting to like picking up Atari as a second hobby because a lot of those guys were collectors. Like Paul Hagstrom, has, I know has an Atari. Carrington Vanston has an Atari. I think a lot of people do like all sorts of retro hardware. It's not, but you know, these guys were just focused on the Apple II in terms of their development and their technical knowledge. 
It's not to say they weren't interested in the presentation that we gave, nor that would they not be interested in the Atari itself. But for our sort of perspective, for the a Kansas Fest-like environment for the Atari, I don't know, that'd be interesting. I it, There's a lot of logistics that go into that kind of stuff. And I think maybe the easiest thing might be to do is be to crash Kansas Fest for a couple years, you know, let them handle the planning. We just, you know, pay our money to them to do all the planning and stuff. And maybe we can have little like side sessions, what do they call them, BOFs at Kansas Fest. You're not interfering with the Kansas Fest presentation itself, but, you know, maybe hang out having a few other sessions, maybe an Atari technical session or two, if we get enough attendees. I don't know, but clearly the, the logistics of that are, are a huge deal and that's not for me. I will let somebody else do that, but I will happily go if somebody happens to plan a Atari Fest. Yes, Kevin, thanks for the email. And um, y'all said he, uh, y'all said it was one of your best podcasts. They're all good, but this is a step up. It was long, good. It covered everything with just the right amount of detail. And can't wait to see what your final efforts are to fix up Star Raiders. Your work on the main machine has inspired me to build one myself, though I am buying a kit cabinet and pre-made joystick trackball multi-button unit. I am building the PC myself and going through the lengthy process of configuring MAME and a front-end package. Yeah, I guess there are a lot of front-ends. I, you know, I'm using the Raspberry Pi and the RetroPie distribution for them, for my kind of stuff. I think Windows might be the most, have, may have the most options for a front-end on, on MAME. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, I know, uh, Rob O'Hare and some other guys who've done PC builds of MAME use a couple different front-ends. Mala maybe is one of the front-ends. But anyway, yeah, good luck with that. Keep me, keep me posted. And thanks for the email. I forgot to mention in a previous episode, James Payton sent me a note that said he went to the um, Atari party and said he probably saw me there. And he also went to California Extreme. He said California Extreme was pretty cool. It had a lot of games you couldn't play anywhere else. And um, I think last time I included a few pictures from um, the official California Extreme website and Twitter and stuff. And yeah, it looked like there was a bunch of, bunch of cool stuff. So yeah, next year I hope to be able to go. Hopefully it doesn't conflict with Kansas Fest. It's definitely, uh, yeah, definitely on my list to go. I also want to try to go back to the Ports on Retro Gaming Expo this year as well. I got an email from Spitfire1500 talking about the Minnesota connection and remembers using the MECC programs on, a, on an Atari 400 and a disk drive. And spoiler alert, we got another MECC mention in a magazine in this episode. An email from friend of the show, Adam Triunfo, said he just listened to the Player Missile game draft number one. He had some thoughts about some of the games. About Minor 2049er, he said it was one of his go-to games in the 80s for the C64, but that he got an Atari 8-bit in the early mid-90s, and he said, I went out of my way to play the game very soon afterward. I discovered the two versions are similar, but the Atari has some idiosyncrasies that made it a standout title when compared to the C64, which is also a good version. The sound colors and control on the Atari are much better than any other version. He said, your tale about hacking Minor 2049er to make the character smaller to fit into other places gave me a chuckle. This is built into the sequel. Bounty Bob Strikes Back. In that, you can play the game using many different options. One of the options will start Bob without his hat, which doesn't seem like it would help too much. But the bareheaded Bob, you'll discover, can clear some extra jumps, which makes him useful, if not a bit funny looking. So, uh, yeah, I haven't really played Bounty Bob Strikes Back, but I'll definitely have to try that now. He was on, I was a bit surprised to hear that most people couldn't clear all ten levels. I thought I was the only person who used to have a problem with this. And about three years ago, I decided I was going to beat all the levels, and I played the game every day, eventually getting good enough to be able to wrap the game twice. It's like, wow, holy cow. But it would take a lot of practice, I think. So, tip of the Bounty Bob hat to you. That is quite an accomplishment. He mentioned Jumpman. He said, I knew Kevin was going to choose this game. I don't blame him. It's a great choice. And yeah, it is. <laughs> yep, Kevin pretty much won the draft by choosing Jumpman. He said he hadn't heard of game draft episodes before this show. And he said, do you recommend any specific episodes that uh, you like in particular? And so basically I stole the idea from No Quarter. The sadly defunct No Quarter. And that's the, that's the first time I heard a game draft. So thanks, Adam. Thanks for the feedback. And glad you liked the game draft episode. I'll do another one of those at some point. That was a lot of fun. Over on Twitter, 8-Bit Rocket pointed me to a link of his that has a comprehensive review of every article and ad in the very first issue of Computer Gaming World. 
So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And also on Twitter, congratulations to Jim Fullerton, the king of the castle for this episode. Oh, wait, that's the wrong podcast. He correctly guessed that my ringtone that interrupted me was from Ballblazer. Classic tune. And again, I've got a whole bunch of ringtones and stuff over on the website. So grab those. Over on the Atari H forums, the hugely long, two worthy video game podcast thread going on there. I don't post a lot, but I generally keep up with it. And through that, uh, from S1500, I learned another podcast that's great. It's the Internet History Podcast by Brian McCullough. And that's, that's a fun podcast over some sort of the beginnings of the web, you know, starting talking about the Mosaic browser. And I remember that. I remember the first Mosaic browser on a deck alpha machine at the computer lab at university. And, you know, I got a home, I got a homepage there through my university account and set up my first little web page, you know, with those, I don't know if you remember those little under construction gifts, you know, the animated gifts that would have little construction flashing things or little construction guys with a pickaxe or something. Animated gifts were the thing back then. But yeah, the development of Mosaic and then into Netscape and then Netscape Mail and just the explosion of the web and all that stuff. So it's a great podcast. And um, yeah, if you've not heard of that one before, I'd encourage you to check it out if you're interested in that sort of era. And another non-computing podcast that I just discovered recently is uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. I think only the last like 10 episodes are free and I think it charges for the back catalog. But the within the current 10 episodes is uh, like a six-part World War One history episode or series. And I don't really know a whole, about, a whole lot about World War One, so it was, it's been a really interesting block of time. I mean, his episodes are three to four hours long each, so it does take a bit of a time commitment. But he's a very dynamic speaker, and he keeps you just enthralled with the amount of, the amount of detail he describes and uh, just the horrors and the miserable conditions that must have existed then. Yeah, having known very little about World War One history, this is a very enlightening podcast. So, yeah, I would encourage you to check that out as well. And finally, coming very shortly, is the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast by David, Michael, and Bill. They talked about it a little bit on the last Antic episode. And uh, so they talked to me beforehand and they you know, they didn't want to seem like they were competing with me. And so, you know, we talked about it. I'm like, no, it's, it's no problem, no issue. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm not going to cover any games that are on cartridge and let them take the lead on any cartridge games. You know, the universe of games for the 8-bits are, is so big that there's, yeah, there's no reason that we cannot have two podcasts that cover games. And from a collecting end, cartridges are much more collectible than discs. So yeah, so I'm going to let them cover the cartridges. I'll cover, you know, I'll limit myself to stuff that's not cartridge-based, with a few possible exceptions that uh, are just games that I just can't give up. But um, I'll let you know when those come up. But yeah, the website says, coming very soon. I, I don't have any more details than that. So uh, check the website, which is xegs8bit.com. And I'm sure they'll post on Atari Age when they're ready to go. So looking forward to that, and hope you are too. For listener written programs this month, got a new listener from down under. Mark McDougall sent me an email and said, I've only recently discovered your podcast and currently up to episode seven. Great podcast, by the way. I was particularly interested in episode six with regards to the port of Sabotage from the Apple II. Whilst I've never owned an Atari back in the day, I'm interested in all the significant classic 8 and 16-bit machines and these days own a 2600, a 130 XE, and a 1040 STE. So that's great. Yeah, welcome to the 8-bit universe. And yeah, binging. <laughs> so... Yeah, I go back and listen to some of my older episodes, and yeah, let's just say I've improved a little bit. I'll leave it to you to say how much I've improved, but um, yeah, I don't script anything. I, I, I did sc- like scripted sections in the early days, so I'd like type out whole paragraphs and kind of like try to read that. And so now I have kind of a bullet list and some notes. And actually, it's interesting. I, I've I've gotten better at not even having any notes at all, and just kind of you know, especially now I've I mentioned in a few episodes previously that. Instead of like taking notes about all the magazines and reading them first, I'm actually going through them like live as I as I read them and recording my thoughts right then. 
So on one hand, it means the show notes aren't nearly as detailed as they used to be. But on the other hand, it takes a lot less time. And, you know, at this point, I'm sort of searching for time to be even be able to do the podcast. So hopefully that trade-off is acceptable to everybody because that's what you're getting. <laughs> anyway, back to Mark. He, uh, he mentioned that he's really interested in porting stuff. He said he's done a couple of these. And he sent me an example of one of the things that he did, which was porting the Space Invaders arcade game to a TRS-80. And I'll include a link of that to that in the show notes. Really cool. This is really, you know, an impressive thing. Kind of like the um, the person who reported the Atari Asteroids arcade game to run on the 800. I mean, it's that, it's that same vein. He's got a lot of Z80 experience, and he does stuff on the Coco as well. He's ported Tutankham, the arcade Tutankham, to the Coco 3. Ported the MSX version of Load Runner to the TRS-80 Model 4. Really cool stuff. So, yeah, I'll include a link to the show note, in the show notes to some of the stuff that he's done. I encourage you, if you have a program you want me to share, drop me an email or send me a link on Twitter or something to a webpage or some write-up of your uh, of your code. Be happy to share that with everybody else. So let's do a main cabinet update. And there you have it. All right, let's talk a little tech. Haven't made any progress on Star Raiders yet, and yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to do a whole lot more in the near future anyway. I, You know, I never announced it on the Atari Age forum, so I might do that and see if anybody wants, wants to pick up the ball and run with it for a little bit. I have an idea for a game that I want, might want to start developing, and I missed the uh, ABBUC software competition for this year. Just ended at the end of uh, July, but it gives me plenty of time for the 2016 contest, so maybe I'll have something working for that. I'd like to do something in CC65 and kind of well, me being an open source person, I'll probably develop it, you know, through GitHub and stuff and let everybody take a look at it as I go. Think of some sort of like platforming game, kind of jump man-y. And given it a year's time, I might be able to get something maybe on the screen next year. So yeah, we'll see. But yeah, I'd like to do something that shows off the, the capabilities of the Atari, you know, using scrolling and player muscle graphics and display list interrupts and stuff like that. You know, something that uses the hardware that exists using like straightforward programming techniques. So that's kind of my goal. And we'll see how far along I can get with that. So let's look at some magazines. And if you want to look at a grid of all the magazines that I'm covering on my website at playervessel.com slash magazines.html, there is a big, big grid going by year and magazine. And I've got, how many columns do I have now? 14 columns of magazines. You know, some here at the end of 1981 haven't even been published yet, but I, you know, the columns are in there just so I can put them in there later. And pretty much everything is from archive.org. So the month that's listed in archive.org is the month at which it shows up in these rows. So looking here, like at December 1981, there's no analog this month. Antic hasn't been published yet. And the first one we're going to look at is the Atari Connection, which is actually for, it says winter 8182, but archive.org shows it up as uh, December. So that's where I'm covering it. You know, these quarterly, bi-monthly magazines and stuff, you know, they have to show up somewhere. And so whatever archive.org puts them is where I'm going to cover them. Yep, so this is the winter 1981-82 issue of Atari Connection. And there's no masthead on the Atari connection. I looked ahead, actually. There will be starting in the next uh, issue. And if you listen to Antic, one of the recent interviews, looks like it's interview 67 with Ted Richards. He comes in here just about now, I think just in, around the end of, 80, of uh, 81, as the editor of the magazine. And he sort of turns it from this purely marketing magazine to a more real magazine with less sort of dictatorial control from the Atari in-house uh, marketing department. So this issue is still... I guess it's kind of more toward the end of the hardcore marketing stuff. And I looked ahead a little bit and it does look like the next one in 82 is a little bit more, I don't know, a conventional magazine. You can still see the, the arm of Atari, but in his interview, he said he sort of worked, was working on making it into a sort of a standalone publication. The cover of this issue is a, 
a family sitting in front of a Christmas tree looking at their Atari 400 with the Telelink 1 cartridge. So the Christmas scene with the stockings hung in the background. The title says, Merry Christmas from your Atari computer. It says, Free Atari Pilot Calendar Gift Inside. So yeah, no masthead. It's just as copyright Atari, essentially. And in the next issue, that will change. The editorial is, We've brought the computer age home, trademark by Atari. And there's a big picture of the ENIAC computer, which at this point says, the caption says, The world's first electronic computer, which, as we know now, is of course not the case. That was Colossus, made by the... GCHQ back in uh, World War II, but that was classified, and I think in you know eighty one when this was written, that wasn't even public knowledge yet. But even so, the ENIAC was the first fully Turing complete electronic programmable computer, and there's a nice picture showing how big it is. You know, it's this huge room sized computer, just wires and plugs and stuff everywhere. And then in a little inset, they show you know a family sitting in front of an Atari four hundred, and <laughs> yeah, a little, little smaller. There's an article about Atari Pilot. It's a new product. It says. Originally designed for schools, Atari Pilot is now being offered in a new package for the Atari home computer users. They talk about turtle graphics and drawing and stuff, how kids can say they can did it themselves. There's an article on the Atari word processor, which Wade covered actually in episode one of his first season of the Inverse Tatasky podcast. So this is not Atari Writer yet, but Atari Writer is shortly forthcoming. There's an article about the computerized household and kind of, you know, they mentioned this on Retro Computing Roundtable and also other topics is like, some of these things they were trying to do with computers, they're shoehorning it like to have a recipe, you know, file or something on your computer where you'd have to plop your Apple II on the kitchen counter in order to use it. But here's like the caption of this picture is this, you know, family in a family room where the kids have an Atari 400 and the parents have an Atari 800. And the caption says, even five-year-old Jeremy uses an Atari computer to keep track of his toys, which is like, yeah, I don't think he's really doing that. I think he's playing Star Raiders or something. But maybe little five-year-old Jeremy used that to justify it to his parents. I can keep track of my toys if you get me this computer. There's an article about the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, MEC. Talked about them a bunch of times. The Atari Institute for Educational Action Research by Ted Kahn. Ted Kahn's brother, Bob, also worked for Atari. And he was one of the guys who ran the Atari summer camps. One of the recent episodes of the Antic Podcast was Kevin Savitz doing a really nice summary of the Atari summer camp project. A great episode where he interviewed one of the campers, some of the counselors, and Bob Kahn himself. So, I, yeah, it's a great episode. And as Kevin has mentioned several times, it took him a lot of work to put that together. And I really appreciate that he did because I never got a chance to go to one of those summer camps and really felt like I, I got some of the what the experience was like. So hopefully you listen to that episode. That's a great one. I'll include a link to that episode in the show notes, of course. In the KidBit section of the magazine, there's an article on Caverns of Mars, and they talk about Greg Christensen, who is the uh, the author of Caverns of Mars. When he, he wrote it when he was in high school, and then now it says he's a 17-year-old Fullerton College freshman and the most recent Atari Program Exchange prize winner. That tells a little bit more about the story of how, how he wrote it. It said the most stubborn bug Greg encountered while writing Caverns of Mars was the persistent vertical scrolling of the TV while the game was in progress. It said there was an effect like when the vertical hold of your television is out of whack, which today nobody knows what the vertical hold is, but it's kind of like the picture would be kind of flipping. So it said there's a bug with some of the vertical blank stuff that he was using, and it said Greg referred to the Atari technical user notes for help. And sure enough, the technical user's notes identified the vertical blank problem in detail, and Greg was able to construct a solution. Caverns of Mars was soon debugged and up and running, all within six weeks. The last week was a day and night affair. Greg says, don't give up. It takes a long time to solve some programming problems. And he goes on to say, nicely understated, but we agree. So... Yeah, a lot of times, you know, for bugs that I just can't figure out, sometimes it helps just to take a break, just, you know, get up, walk, do something else and come back. And then, you know, the, sort of the idea of just focusing on it so intensely, sometimes you miss the obvious thing. So, yep, Rob's programming tips for the day. Further on the Kid Big session, there's a programming puzzle by Tom Hudson, who we've heard of. 
and he gives a little 17 line basic program, but all the lines are scrambled. So you have to unscramble them in the correct order. And there's another one, a find the bug. And so they, they list a little 10 line basic program and you're supposed to find the error in it. There's an entertainment section where they're talking about colors on the computer. So they list the 16 colors and how to use the set color command. And they kind of go into the, the different categories of graphics modes. You know, there's the four color modes, the two color modes, and then graphics eight, the high res mode, which only has the single color with the sort of artifacting if you want. But there's an article about taking a computer onto a, a ship with the Bay Area Marine Institute. There's another article, article about Star Raiders playing on a big TV. You know, we think of big TVs now as, you know, 60 inch or something is a, that's a pretty good size. This is playing, you're playing Star Raiders projected on a planetarium dome. Now, how cool would that be? They had an event at the Gates Planetarium in Denver, and they projected Star Raiders up there. So they had three to 5,000 people over the two days. I presume they weren't playing Star Raiders the whole time, but I don't know. Maybe they were. I'd pay for that. Oh, here we go. So 1981, we are still, we're in the Warner era. Here's some leveraging of the, of the Warner record catalog. There's an article about Kraftwerk. The article starts, Computer World, Kraftwerk's debut album for Warner Brothers Records, represents one of the most challenging and inventive musical assemblages of our time. So this is Warner really trying to leverage the Atari connection here. No pun intended. We'll hear more from Kraftwerk later. And then finally, there's a Atari gift collection on the last page of the magazine. So there's a whole bunch of stuff. Well, first, there's an Atari 800 with a little bow on top of it. So that'd be a nice gift. But they have a designer key ring, a convertible key ring, a thin line Atari keychain. Also, there's different keychain products. An Atari polo shirt, not shown. Uh, Atari letter opener. Atari money clip slash pocket knife, which won't make it through airport security nowadays. There's an Atari LCD quartz crystal clock calendar. And then the only thing that doesn't have the Atari logo on it is the Computers for People book by Willis and Miller. Everything else has that iconic Atari logo somewhere. And I can't tell you how much I still like that Atari logo. And it's funny, even the minute changes they did when, you know, the current property rights, intellectual right holders of Atari now, wherever they are, the former Infogram, they changed the Fuji logo so that center column is not rectangle anymore sort of flared at the bottom and that just it looks it's an abomination to me it's just that minor change just, just sort of represents all the stuff that went wrong with atari the classic logo is yeah what i associate with atari all righty let's look at bite magazine this is december 1981 volume 6 number 12 two bucks 50 on the cover price again just a great piece of artwork on the front cover by robert tinney it's a pinball machine where the table of the pinball is some resistors and electronic circuits and the upright part with the score and stuff has a the title uh, Hex Angels, where it's a guy on a motorcycle, and the guy the guy actually reminds me kind of like a Harry Potter looking guy, like little round glasses and sort of the wearing like a I don't know, sweater vest and a tie. You know, kind of reminds me of what I think of sort of British boarding school kind of look. And one of the fun little touches is it says "Insert twenty five sector disc for the coin slot." Just love this artwork. So bites its usual five hundred fifty page self. Lots of ads. The only thing Atari-specific in the table of contents is the Atari Tutorial Part 4, Display List Interrupts, by Chris Crawford. There's a couple other articles that we'll definitely look at. One is uh, called The Coinless Arcade, by Greg Williams, talking about microcomputer games where you can have your fun and your quarters, too. There's an article about how to build mazes, a random generator for mazes. For you Coco fans, there's a structured 6809 assembly language, Part 2. We mentioned that in the last issue. Some of the article looks interesting that we'll take a look at. What makes computer games fun by Thomas Malone? Why the average outer space game may be more educational than many classroom drill and practice programs. Hmm. That'll be interesting to check out. And there's various other stuff that we'll look at as we go along. So let's get to it. So the Coinless Arcade by Greg Williams, senior editor, it says. So I don't know if this is a new column that they're going to start up, but it's talking about computer games. Um, not necessarily arcade clone games, but uh, just some of the newest computer games. 
It's a six-page article, and on this first page, there's Star Castle for the Apple II called Space Warrior. I don't remember seeing that. I mean, this is the time when I, before I had my Atari, so 81, the, you know, I was like playing pirated games on the Apples at school. There's Apple Panic, which I do remember. And here's a game for the Atari called Galactic Empire. The original was by Doug Carlston. It says the Atari translation by David Simmons from Adventure International. On the next page, they talk about a few more games that are familiar. There's Raster Blaster, which is a famous pinball game by Bill Budge for the Apple II. Talk about Missile Command for the 400-800. Another famous Apple game called Gorgon by Nazar for the Apple II. Serious software. That was one of the early publishers for the Apple II that I really remember. Then the last pages of this article, there's Eastern Front for the 400-800. And the very first Ultima on the Apple II. So just a quick little overview of some of the games that are available on the systems at the time. Next, and continuing sort of bit about their uh, the technical details that they have in Byte, there's a, a circuit. It's called CRCA's Circuit Seller by Steve CRCA. It's a build a touchtone decoder for remote control. So there's this big circuit diagram about creating some uh, this little circuit to make sounds and stuff to dial a phone. Again, another like 25-page article with half the stuff being ads, but very in-depth schematics and all sorts of stuff. There's the Bytes Arcade section where they review some computer games. There's a, they review a couple Missile Command games, ABM by Muse, and Missile Defense by Online Systems, both for the Apple II. And then there's a review of Gorgon that they just pictured in the previous article. It's pretty much Defender. There's a little mini review of a game called Combat, C-O-M-M-B-A-T. They call it a telegame for two, which is a game you connect via modems. This must be one of the earliest ones. It's for the TRS-80 uh, Model 1 or Model 3. There's an article, Battle of the Asteroids, by Greg Williams. The article says, I gathered every Asteroids-like game I could find and created a chart to tell you which version does what. It says, all but one were for the Apple II. And he didn't look at the Atari version of Asteroids, which is obviously had been out by then. So, hmm. Okay, here we go. Here's the Atari Tutorial Part 4 Display List Interrupts by Chris Crawford. So we've talked about Display List Interrupts before, and again, they're kind of, they're ways to interrupt the antic as it's drawing lines on the screen to do small little tasks. You know, there's not enough processor power to do much more than change a few color registers or move a few players around. But the fact that this is available at all, and the, you know, like something like this is not even possible on most other machines at the time. You know, the Apple II doesn't even have a vertical blank interrupt. So he describes how the display list is, is set up and then how it's called. There's a bit that's set on the display list instruction. And when Mantic encounters that, it waits until the last scan line of that mode line is being drawn, and then it triggers the display list interrupt. So this is kind of a critical thing to understand, that when you set a display list interrupt on a, dis- on a line on a, in, the, in the display list, display list doesn't happen bef- the, the interrupt doesn't happen before that display list is drawn. It happens after that, that mode line is drawn, or you know, on the final scan line of that mode line. The antique does trigger the display list interrupt at the start of that final scan line, but the operating system has this this interrupt service routine that sets it up. And so it it says, uh, the OS consumes 33 machine cycles. And so he says, thus the first instructionary DLI service routine will not be reached until 33 machine cycles have elapsed in the last scan line of the interrupting mode line. So the 33 machine cycles corresponds to 66 color clocks on the screen. Thus your DLI service routine will begin executing while the electron beam is partway across the screen in the last scan line of the interrupting mode line. And he goes on, for example, if such a DLI routine changes a color register, the old color will be displayed on the left half of the scan line, and the new color will show up on the right half. Because of uncertain timing in the response of the 6502 to an interrupt, the border between the colors will not be sharp, 
but will jiggle back and forth irritatingly. The solution to this problem is provided in the form of the WSYNC register, which is hex D4OA. So whenever you do something to that address, it essentially it halts the 6502 in the until the WSYNC is reset by the next horizontal sync pulse. So essentially you're just killing time waiting for the horizontal beam to get back to the left side of the screen, and then you can make a color register change or something, and um, it'll show up in the next line as a solid color change. It won't be flickering back and forth on the previous scan line. That's typically what you do with the DLI is you set the DLI on the line above where you want the change to happen. Now, if you're really doing a DLI to to try to do some work and you're you're limited by number of cycles in a, a scan line, you might think that storing a value to WSYNC register and then waiting, just, you know, busy waiting until the scan line, until the electron beam goes back to the front is kind of a waste of time. And in fact, it is. And so you've got 114 cycles per scan line. And so knowing you have this sort of rough availability of 114 minus 33, so around 81 cycles, you can still do a few operations before you trigger the WSYNC and then wait. So if you tr- if you trigger WSYNC immediately, then you're just going to waste a bunch of cycles on the on that last scan line. So you do a few operations, trigger the WSYNC, so there's only a couple cycles left in that DLI, and then wait only a few cycles, and then you'll have more time to finish up. When you do write a DLI, you've got to save all the registers that you use. So if you clobber the A, X, or Y, you've got to push those to the stack before you use them, because it's going to expect that the state of the processor is this, in the same state it was before the DLI is called. But all that work you've got to do yourself. So an example of, the, of a simple DLI to change the colors on the screen in the got a little basic program that does the that pokes the machine language program into page six and then runs it. One of the limitations of the display list interrupt is there's only a single vector that the operating system will call. So if you want to make multiple display list interrupts, you know, have multiple lines on the screen where you're calling a display list, you actually have to do that work yourself and have a counter or something in your display list. So like the first time it's called, it does one thing. The second time it's called, it does another thing. Or I suppose you could update the operating system's vector every time. An additional complication for displayless interrupts is that not only is there a, a maximum of 81 processor cycles that are available during the, the time, you've got to call the WSYNC operation, what does he say here, by cycle number 103. So that gives you 11 fewer cycles. And then on top of that, the antic, as it's going along, it's also stealing processor time because both the antic and the 6502 can't access memory at the same time. So every time the antic needs to draw something on the screen, it shuts off the 6502. And depending on what graphics mode you're using, there are different amounts of time that the antic steals. And he gives an example here the with the basic modes 0, 7, and 8, which are 40 bytes per line. He does the math, and so you've only got 45 cycles to do anything in those modes. He gives an example where if you try to use all three registers, so you've got to push those all in the stack, load three colors from those registers and then stuff those in there and then restore the stuff off the stack, you already have cost yourself 47 cycles. So you are very limited in what you can do. And he starts going through some optimizations, how you can might, how you might be able to do more stuff with it. So you can try to do some work in the vertical blank or the big hammer approach is to use a kernel. So kernels are how 2600 programming has to work because they've only got a line buffer, but it is possible to use a kernel in the 400-800. The downside of the kernel is, is you lose all essentially processor cycles other than the vertical blank when you're because the what essentially what the kernel is doing then is it slaves the 6502 to the display processing one of the interesting things about the kernel is that it allows the use of multicolored players and in the article it says here that you can't use a dli to change the color of a player because the dli is based on scanline position and not player position but it seems like you could if you knew where the player was you could just change the player color on a particular line and he used the example of the atari basketball program saying you couldn't have done it 
without a kernel because it uses these multicolored players. But like Miner 2049er has a multicolor dude, and it seems like that's much too complicated to use a kernel. So I, I don't know. I'll have to experiment with that, or maybe somebody knows if you can use a DLI to change a player. It seems to me that you could, but I mean, Chris Crawford obviously knows more than me. So it's quite likely that I don't know what I'm talking about. So there are a lot of issues with trying to actually use display list interrupts if you want to do something more than just, you know, simple color changes or things. But one of the things he does say that is, is possible is like to reuse players. So if you have a player on the top of the screen, you get a DLI and you can change its horizontal position and use it again for some other task. He says another way you can use them is to change the player with their priority, you know, the stacking order of the player or to change character sets. But anything that can be laid out in sort of a, you know, vertical orientation is a good use of a display list interrupt because then you can change colors and have sort of separate screens or split screens. Or He sort of wraps up saying, the proper use of DLI requires careful layout of the screen display. Designers must give close consideration to the vertical architecture of their displays. The Atari 400-800 display system was designed specifically for raster scan television. It's not a flat, blank sheet of paper on which you draw. It's a stack of thin strips, each of which can take different parameters. So again, this is kind of the you know, when they're designing the, the Antic, they really wanted to automate this racing the beam, you know, the, the 2600 style of kernel drawing on a, on a line buffer. So by automating that, they created this these abilities to change parameters on, on every single line. And that is really what the display list buys you. It's a very powerful technique, but it needs to be very heavily optimized in order to, to do anything more than simple tasks. But if you've got some structure that's vert- that's vertically oriented, display this or something that'll buy you that ability to, to change something on the vertical structure. In this game that I'm thinking about building, this sort of platformer thing, I definitely want to have some examples of the display list interrupts in there. I'm thinking about, you know, CC65, and the display lists will have to be written in straight 6502 just because the C is just not going to cut it. There's just going to be too much overhead. When you've only got, you know, 40 to 60 cycles to do something with, you're going to have to pop down right to the assembly language. See, I'd like this game that I'm thinking about developing to kind of demonstrate all sort of basic uses of all the different parts of the system, you know, scrolling, players, display list interrupts, vertical blank interrupts. So maybe kind of become a little tutorial of sorts. So yep, in my copious free time, I am definitely thinking about doing that at some point. All right, we'll get back to the rest of the magazine. There's a article on how to build a maze by David Matusek, the from the Department of Computer Science at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So talking about how to generate a maze and so using a rectangular grid so the traditional maze has one starting point and one finishing point. In addition, all locations inside the maze are reachable from the start, and there's, a, there's one and only one path from the start to the finish. While it's easy to place doorways and barriers randomly inside a maze, it's more difficult to satisfy the two latter constraints. So the general approach, it says, is to begin with a rectangular array where each cell is completely walled in, and then second, judiciously erase walls inside the array until we arrive at a structure with the following property. For any two cells of the array, there's only one path between them. Any cell can be reached from any other cell, but only by a single unique path. So there's a couple of figures. They show a few mazes, and they, it says that computer science jargon refers to such a structure as a spanning tree. And it's the creation of this spanning tree is the tricky part of building the maze. The final step, he says, is the border of the maze is broken into two places to provide a start and a finish position. Since there's a unique path between any two cells of the maze, there will be a unique path from start to finish. So he says that the start... And finish can be chosen in some convenient manner, like at the opposite sides of the maze somewhere. One of the issues of a maze is if you if you draw a maze on paper, you have lines and the cells. Like say, if you're looking at graph paper, the problem with the computer is the the lines between the cells actually have to have some finite thickness, and so you're look, you're talking about pixels now instead of just like infinitesimal lines. So a four by four maze that's using the example here 
you need a nine by nine grid of pixels. So one pixel width for the border around the entire maze and then alternating a spot for the maze and a spot for the wall. So looking across a row, you've got five pixels that are used for the walls or the border and then four pixels that are used for the place that the, the maze actually runs. So you got to keep track of that kind of stuff when you're building a computer maze. There's no code in this article, just the description of the algorithm. But um, yeah, interesting to think about. Another interesting algorithm to think about would be a maze solution routine, but that's a whole other step up. Uh, if you've ever seen the program X Screensaver for Linux systems and I think Mac OS as well, it's got a maze solving program where you can kind of see it make its decisions as it goes through the solution of the maze. But yeah, that's a whole other order of magnitude harder. Going on, there's another article, uh, the structured 6809 assembly language that was referenced in the previous magazine as well. So part two, implementing a structured assembler. This is by Gregory Walker from Motorola itself. And so he's talking about a the Motorola macro assembler. And if you do assembly language programming, macros are definitely a good way to simplify and make your code a little more, more, more readable. And you know, it doesn't, doesn't just apply to 6809 assembly language. There's, you know, like Mac 65 is a macro assembler for the Atari. Essentially, it's a way to make a, a commonly used uh, assembly language subroutine that's not a subroutine, it sort of expands in place when you call it. And so you don't have the overhead of calling a function and returning. The downside is you're trading size for speed. So you, if you have a macro that has 10 assembly language commands in it, and you call that macro, so every time you call that macro, it's going to stuff those 10 commands right there in the code. Oh, here's an ad for Commodore with a kind of a creepy looking William Shatner pose. I got this, I don't know, too wide grin or something. It's holding a Commodore pet. Yeah. Well, they do have their ads. Another 50 pages before we get to the next interesting article. What makes computer games fun? By Thomas W. Malone of the Cognitive and Instructional Sciences Group at Xerox Park. <laughs> and it opens with that. It says, rumor has it that when the Space Invaders game was first introduced in Japan, the Japanese treasury ran out of the coin that was used to operate the game. <laughs> and as we've talked about before, that's a false rumor. <laughs> he says, true or not, the phenomenal popularity of various computer games is obvious to anyone who's wandered through a shopping mall, airport lounge, or toy store in the last few years. And yep, arcades is something you don't see nowadays too much, unfortunately. But why are these games so captivating, he says. And how do these, and how can these same things make computer games captivating be used to make learning with computers more interesting and enjoyable? To help answer these questions, I systematically studied more than 100 people playing computer games, looking primarily at what makes the games fun. Then I developed a set of guidelines for designing highly motivated educational computer programs. So he got this set of a bunch of games and had some kids rate them. And there's a big table of them starting. There's a, a game called Pet Ball, which ranked the highest. It was a simulated pinball with sound. It's a next highest was Snake 2, which is a, I don't know, apparently some sort of snake game, two-player snake game. And then Breakout, and then goes down. And the, <laughs> one of the bottom games was Eliza. I don't know if you remember that program, which is a simulated psychiatrist. So... It doesn't list up here, but apparently they're run on the Commodore Pet. He says here, the first, the most important factor in determining popularity in the sample was whether or not the game had a goal, like break out the goal being destroy all the blocks. But in Eliza, there's no goal because you're just talking to this fake psychiatrist. The first game he looked at, he said, was Breakout. And that a lot of the people enjoyed the game because they could talk about their scores. They can compare it with other people. The next one he looked at in detail, he said, was Darts, which is a fractions game. You've got to type the correct fraction to pop these darts that are lined up against a number line. He went through and so he designed this checklist for designing enjoyable educational programs. Like, does it have a goal? Are the goals personally meaningful? Does it have a variable difficulty level? Does it have multiple goal levels? How random is it? How much hidden information is selectively revealed? Does it include surprises? Does it have constructive feedback? There's a whole bunch, there's a whole list here that 
even though I'm not interested in, in educational games per se, I mean, there's still stuff that we can look at for regular games. And speaking of games, you can enter the Byte Game Contest. First prize, $500. Second prize, $250. Third, fourth, and fifth prize is a bound copy of Byte Volume 1, which is all the magazines from September 75 through December of 76. And sixth through eighth prizes are publication of your game in Byte. You can program on the Apple II, Atari 800, the PET, the IBM PC, TRS-80 models 1 or 3 for on uh, floppy disk. Or you can do the VIC-20, the Coco on cassette tape, the TRS-80 model 2 on an 8-inch disk, or CPM using plain vanilla terminal on an 8-inch disk. Looking for graphics-style arcade games, text simulations, role-playing games, adventures, strategy games, abstract games, historical games, anything that's fun. Just be sure to get your entry in before March 31st, 1982. Winners will be announced in the August 82 issue of Byte. Wow, they have a huge index here. They're called the Byte Cumulative Index from September 75 through December 81. All the articles they've written, the type, um, the language in which this thing's programmed in, the author, in really, really tiny font, covering pages 366 through 446, where generally, in most cases, the index will be on the left and there'll be an advertisement, advertising page on the right. They've run a lot of articles in Byte. Holy cow. All right, let's look at the compute. This is December 1981, $2.50 on the color cover price. Issue 19, Volume 3, Number 12. The resource magazine for CBM Pet, Apple, Atari, and OSI. So that is interesting. So that is the sort of above the title on compute. It used to say the 6502 resource magazine. And it used to list the uh, single board computers like the Kim, AIM, stuff like that. So I wonder if they've removed some of their coverage. Let's take a look. On the cover, they have a picture of a winter scene where it's a snowy house and some floppy disks outside dancing around with some apples and mice running through a maze. Kind of odd juxtaposition of stuff. It lists the inside Atari cover on the cover. It says part two, the mysteries of IO. And it has Maze Maker, a maze generator for game applications. So yeah, we got some synergy here going on with the mazes. And yep, it looks like it's true. They no longer have the SBC Gazette, the single board computer gazette. In the table of contents, they have Apple Gazette, Atari Gazette, OSI Gazette, and Pet Gazette, and that's it. So it looks like they've zapped the other single board computers. Looks like we've got some interesting stuff in the Atari Gazette, which we'll get to. They have that maze generator, and there's a introduction to binary numbers. So yeah, let's look at it. Early on here, there's a ad for Atari. That maybe we won't see one of those dumb ads for the piracy. This game is over. This is the graphic difference between Atari computers and all others. We've seen this one before. Just shows 10 screenshots of various things on the Atari. There's nothing men- mentioned in the editor's notes about dropping the single board computer stuff, so maybe they just thought it would fade away. Yeah, here's an ad for the portable computer, it says. But then further down, it's a case that you can carry your Apple II and two floppy drives. Portable in the sense that it can be moved. Here's the article on the maze generator. It has versions for the Pet Microsoft Basic and the Atari. It says they can be used for many excellent games. When you come up with something interesting, send it to compute. Talking about some of the same issues as the maze generator in the Byte magazine, where you've got, you know, because we're not dealing with a mathematical maze, you know, it's we're actually dealing with pixels that have physical dimensions. You've got to use an odd number of pixels as a as the size. So it's got to be an odd number tall and odd number wide because there's a there's got to be a space for a border pixel and a maze pixel. And then a border pixel. So there, you know it's got to be surrounded by border pixels. So that gives you an odd number. This algorithm looks to be a little bit different in that it actually draws it into screen memory as it goes. So the way this one works is it chooses a starting location picks some random direction, tries to walk a space, and if it's valid, then it goes that way, and then it goes back again. And it, if it's invalid, then it rotates left and tries that direction to see if that's a valid direction. 
And what it means by a valid direction is, is it has it tried that direction before? And is it like part of the outside border? Is it, is it someplace that it can't actually go anymore? This algorithm is a little bit different than the one in Byte in that it can handle closed off areas. And it's like, only it's like a 15 line basic program. It's really small. I don't understand the algorithm well enough by reading the code here, but it doesn't maintain a, uh, like a table or anything of where it's gone. So how does it back up? Hmm. Cause it runs into a dead end. It's, it says it backs up to some other point. I don't know. Interesting. There's an article on the introduction to binary numbers, going through sort of basic math stuff, comparing decimal and binary. It's really just the same, except you're limited instead of the digits zero through nine, it's zero through one. There's the Apple Gazette, and we'll continue on. Here's the Atari Gazette. It starts off with Inside Atari by Bill Wilkinson from Optimized System Software. This is about Atari IO Part 2, the disk file manager. He notes that the title of this section is not Atari DOS, and there's a simple reason because Atari does not have a DOS. But please don't tell them I said so. They think that they have to call it DOS, because that's what everybody else calls it. Atari has an OS, actually a much more powerful system than what is normally called DOS. And he's talking about like the device drivers and stuff, the, the P colon device, E colon device. And the disk file manager is simply a device driver for the disk D colon device. It was written completely separately from Atari OS and interfaces to the OS in the same way any other driver does. So this is, you know, it's really ahead of its time for, for what it was. It talks about opening, closing, error handling. There's the great computer book that I remember, Inside Atari DOS, which I'll include a link to, to over to Kevin Savitz's site. It's an ad for the Axelon RAM disk. Atari 800 users, just plug it in and go. 128K of RAM memory, which can be utilized as an additional disk or bank-selectable RAM. Next article is Discovering Atari's Hidden Graphics by Gregory Kopp. So it's talking about using graphics modes, basic modes one and two, and how you you only have half the character set available at any one time. And so you can use you can switch between character sets or change the colors of those characters on those graphics modes. Basic program called String Art by Craig Maiman, which plots some mathematical patterns, but there's, again, no screenshots, so it's hard to know what it is. Fortunately, it's a short program if you wanted to type it in. A little basic program called Billiard Bounce to... Oh, I see it draws a... You go to uh, some directions, and it'll trace patterns as a, as a ball, like would... As if a ball were bouncing between the, the um, bumpers on a billiard table. It's an article on Blinking Characters like the blink tag. So there's a little machine language program that alternates the state of a register called CHACT. So if that's if that bit is if bit 1 is set in that register, the inverse characters are displayed as inverse and if it's set as 0, then they're displayed as normal characters. So it's a little machine language routine that sort of alternates between those two. Article make your Atari keyboard a little friendlier. Essentially a key mapping program for the Atari. He says if you've ever been typing on the Atari program and hit the inverse video key instead of shift, and this article's for you. Yeah, it's funny on I remember the inverse key, it was like, well, it's to the left of the rightmost shift key, the right shift. And for some reason, I never really used the right shift key at all, so I never had that problem. So you're changing the keyboard vector to this to your own little machine language program. And it's got a little, it's got a full listing of the machine language. Next is adding high-speed vertical positioning to player missile graphics. This is a very common topic for little assembly language pro- programs. How to move players up and down fast while using BASIC. Something called a poor programmer's word processor, which is essentially... A, what, 20 line basic program to turn your program, turn your Atari into a typewriter. And that's it for the Atari Gazette. And they go on to the OSI Gazette and the Pet Gazette. That is about it for this compute, <laughs> except for the creepy photo of William Shatner on the back cover for advertising the Commodore Pet. Here's computer and video games for December 1981, 75B. Though interestingly, there's a picture of this just raging sea with a ship with an American flag on it. So odd out of a UK magazine. It says, are you the world's best arcade game player? Entry forms inside. And also, solve the cube, picture of the Rubik's Cube. Let's see how much Atari stuff we have going on here. Nothing in the table of contents, 
but we'll start flipping through. There's a little article on Go with the game, which I've never understood. You play using stones and you play on a, what is it, 17 by 17 board? Or is it 19 by 19? But you actually play on the intersections of the lines rather than on the, the squares as you would in chess or something. The arcade action section talks about Asteroids Deluxe being released. Much harder version of Asteroids. How about Donkey Kong and how it looks likely to become the latest success? And, you know, this is before he became Mario. He's just known as Jumpman at that point. Of course, Jumpman to me means the game Jumpman by Epix. Then they get the program listing stuff. There's a breakout game for the Acorn Atom that I assume it's breakout. There's no screenshot again. Yeah, no screenshots here for the most part. The soccer game, mini golf game for the Atari. Some sort of ocean current ship navigation game for the TRS-80. No screenshots, so don't. It's a long listing, though. There's a program for yeah, Solve the Cube. It's a cube-solving program for a 16K 40-column pet machine. So it's, it's a program that enables anyone to solve the cube by giving a, a precise list of rotations to carry out. So it maintains the state of the cube internally, and you have to only enter the original pattern of colors on each face of the cube. So somehow you do that, and it solves it algorithmically. Interesting. I've always wanted to figure out how to do it. I, mean, I learned how to do it from a pattern book years ago, and I've not done it for a long time. But I've, I've wanted to take the time to figure out how to solve it myself and learn these algorithms. But maybe I'll have to wait to do that until my kids get interested in trying to solve that. The basic program is interesting in that it has no comments about the algorithms it uses. So it's a probably three to 400 line program, basic program, with no comments. There's a toy section for electronic toys, like some memory games and stuff. And there's a LED game called Jet Fighter. A second called Practical Programming by Ted Ball, who is doing some basic programming. And here's some mini reviews of some games. There's a Hitchhiker's Galaxy game, but it's not the one we think of as a text adventure. It's something by um, Bob Chappell. And it doesn't list what company it was. Oh, from a company called Supersoft. Also a little review of Gorgon, which was also mentioned in Byte. But continuing the theme here, there's no screenshots for any of these games. There's some illustrations that sort of represent maybe some sort of abstract thing about the game, but no, nothing on the game itself. Another article called Down to Basic, which is another basic programming uh, sort of tutorial. There's a software glossary, a beginner's guide to plain jargon. You're using words like algorithm, array, array subscript, bits, bug, byte, chip, character string, concatenate. Good little primer on some words that most of which are not used that much anymore. Here's something called Hardcore, a guide to the low-cost computers available in the UK. So it runs them all down. The Acorn Atom, Atari 400, 800, the BBC Micro, DAI, a 48K computer made in Belgium, the NASCOM, a new brain handheld computer, the Ohio Scientific Computer, the PET, the Sharp MZ80, and the Sharp PC 1211, which is a little handheld thing. The Sinclair, the ZX80 and ZX81, the Exidy Sorcerer, the Tandy TRS-80, the Tangerine computer, which is a kit, apparently. Looks like it might be a 6502 based. The TI-994, the VIC-20, the Video Genie, it says compatible with the Tandy TRS-80 Model 1, and the UK-101, which is a kit already built, but doesn't say the company, and I've not heard of that one. There's an ad for the Acorn Atom, and this one includes screenshots, so one of the few things we've seen screenshots in, but it's, of course it's an ad, so... And the back cover is a ad for a company called Callisto Computers Limited, which is a looks like a software hardware store in Birmingham. But the only pictures on there are the Atari 400, the 800, and the 410 cassette recorder. So the 400 is 345 pounds, and the 800 is 645 pounds. All right, let's look at Creative Computing. This is December 1981, Volume 7, Number 12, 2 bucks 50. It says, it's the number one magazine of computer applications and software. It has a picture of this cartoon bug, and what I assume says, techniques to get rid of program bugs... But, and this is the downside of looking at stuff from only one source, is that the address sticker has been sort of whited out. 
on the scan at archive.org, and it covers over the, the bottom little title there, so I can't exactly see what it says. The only mention of Atari is it says programs for Apple, Atari, TRS-80, PET, and Sol. And the table of contents looks like the only mention of the Atari is the Outpost Atari. There's an ad for an Apple, talking about the Apple II, and just picture this burned-out fire scene and this cat kind of sitting next to this roasted Apple II. This cat apparently in his house took kicked over a lamp and started a fire in this guy's house, melted the TV all over top of his computer. And so the yeah, this soot-stained Apple II and keyboards melted. <laughs> Doesn't look all that much better than some of the ones that was at the Kansas Fest giveaway table. But the point of the ad was they took it into a com- the computer store where he bought the Apple, and it still worked. So they just replaced the keyboard in the case, and it was good to go. So a lot more sturdy than the iPhone 6, not quite as bendy. There's a big article on the IBM personal computer. It says, Creative Computing Equipment Evaluation. So they're quite clearly taken about the by the IBM. I'm not a big fan, but there you go. Clearly, IBM, though, they did something right. The rest of the computer industry followed suit and gave birth to the computing scene we have today. There's a great interview on the Internet History Podcast with Rod Kenyon, the, one of the founders of Compaq, and sort of tells a story about how Compaq was started from you know the clone of the IBM personal computer. I'll put a link to that one in the show notes. That's it's a great interview. They went into some comparisons back in this article. They go into comparisons with the um, so the graphics modes of all the machines. And so the IBM PC added the 80 column mode, which is which is very important. And I think having that built in 80 column mode was one of the reasons it succeeded in business. And they had a 320 by 200 graphics mode and a 640 by 200 graphics mode. Yeah, so it's a 20 page article about the IBM. And in summary, it says, I'm going to buy one as soon as I can. <laughs> so, yeah. Next article is a review of Crush Crumble and Chomp which was available for the Atari, of course. Oh, there's an ad for Gorgon, which, God, we're, we seem to be having just a bunch of coincidences. You know, last episode, it was Othello stuff. In this episode, it seems to be Gorgon and mazes. Let's see if there's any mazes in this issue. <laughs> there's a review of a game called uh, Valdez, a super tanker simulation. And this is well before the accident of the Exxon Valdez, but they're talking about the port of Valdez, Alaska. So it's for the Apple Pet Northstar TRS-80... CPM and Atari. No screenshots, so I don't know if it's a graphics game or a text game. Given that it's on so many systems, it's probably a text-based game. There's an article on the evaluation of Visitrend and Visiplot from Personal Software. I'll have to pass that link over on to Wade for Season 2 of Inversitasky. There's a summary of the fourth Personal Computer World show, which is in September 81 in Hammersmith, London. So the first reference I talk about is, is the BBC Micro, which is just starting to become available. And then uh, the next article, they talk about probably the mo- person most miffed about not getting the contract to produce the BBC is Clive Sinclair. Here it says, it says rumor has it that the ZX82 will be fully BBC compatible, which clearly turned out to be not the case. So what came after the ZX81? Was it the Spectrum? Yeah, pretty much talking about all the computers we talked about right at the end of the computer and video games um, magazine. They mentioned the PET there, but don't see that they mentioned the Atari anywhere. And listening to the Atari folks from the UK that I've talked with, you know, like um, Vic from the 10 Pence Arcade podcast and stuff, it seems like the Atari sort of more came in over there in the XL era when it was like really cost reduced. And I think like 650 pounds right now, yeah, so it's a huge expense compared to the what the ZX Spectrum and even the BBC Micro are going to go for. A little article about recursion in BASIC. I know, was recursion supported in Atari BASIC? I don't even remember. I don't think that was a technique I was really aware of when I was programming Atari BASIC. It's an article on successive approximation by computer, essentially like Newton's method. Oh, in this case, they're particularly talking about annuities, so more financial, you know, financial-oriented stuff. There's an article about how to calculate pi using a Monte Carlo approach, where they essentially simulate random dots in a uh, quarter circle of unit radius. So the number of dots that appear inside the circle versus the number of dots that are outside the circle. 
so the equation of a circle is x squared plus y squared equals 1. So if x squared plus y squared is less than or equal to 1, it's on or inside the circle. And if it's greater than that, it's outside the circle. So if you simulate the number of random points, test that equation, and get the percentage that it's inside and outside, and you can estimate the, the value of pi. In this case, pi over 4. Cool. Neat approach. Depends on how good your random number generator is, I suppose. An article on the sieve of Eratosthenes, how to compute prime numbers. So where you start with a big number line, you say, okay, everything that's a multiple of two, let's cross out. So you cross out four, six, eight, whatever. Everything's a multiple of three, you cross out. Now three, six, nine. Everything's a multiple of four, we've already crossed out, so we don't have to worry about those. Then cross out the multiples of five. So 10, 15, 20. And you keep going on this, and you're left, the ones that aren't crossed out are prime numbers. This is an exceedingly slow way to calculate really big prime numbers. But there is no really fast way to calculate prime numbers, which is sort of the basis on all modern cryptography. And why people are already scrambling. There was, a, there was an article on Ars Technica about the coming wave of quantum computers and how that could render the current cryptography routines obsolete. I'll include a link to that in the show notes, of course. Great article. Here's the Outpost Atari by Dave and Sandy Small. So conveniently, this is also talking about displayless interrupts. So just like the Byte magazine, we're, we've got a description of displayless interrupts. This one, on a slightly more beginner-friendly level than uh, Chris Crawford's version in Byte. So they go into the background on how the screen works and how the electron beam traces the, the pattern. And they describe the process about how antic steel cycles from the 6502 and how it can be used to be interrupted and change stuff on the display. So they provide a little assembly language routine here to change the background colors. It's a table-driven routine, so it uses the register V-count to tell what scan line it's on. You can change all the color registers. So this is a nice companion article to the one in... Byte. It's a little more accessible to someone just learning display lists and, uh, you know, conversely, not quite as in-depth. It doesn't get really into register or cycle counts and stuff. And that's about it for the Atari stuff in this magazine. Let's look at Micro, the 65026809 journal. On the cover is a Christmas scene with some pixelated graphics overlaid on this snowy outdoor scene with, you know, snow-covered trees and snow-covered fence. And, and I haven't been reading this magazine long enough, but again, it's from the perspective of inside the computer looking out. So you see the keyboard in the near foreground and then the winter scene in the back. They list Atari joysticks on the front cover, but that's all the Atari stuff here. Let's see if they've got anything in the table of contents. And nothing else. Nope. There's an article on data collection with your micro. It says it's written for the AIM-65, but is read- readily adaptable to any 6502 microprocessor with either a 6520 or 6522 interface adapter. Let's... So the 6522 is a, called the VIA, the Versatile Interface Adapter. And the 6520 is the PIA, PIA which was in fact used, the 6520 was used on the Atari 800. It's the joystick port interface. There's a schematic of how to map the AIMS application connector interface to a little, little IC in order to get the A to D circuit working. There's an article about how to build an amplifier for your pet. It says an easy to build device for listening to pet cassette tapes, which is interesting. So you're listening to a tape that's being played by a tape recorder. It's an article about ground faults and it shows the death of a chip, that how the current path can go to between devices with a power being switched off, like there's a capacitor or something that's in there. Here's the article. It says, proportional joystick for Atari. You know, the digital joysticks, the CX40s, just on off. So they're here they're telling you how to wire up a tensiometer joystick using the paddle controllers. So it's using pins 5, 7, and 9 on the joystick port. It's got a nice little picture of the DB9 connector and which pins correspond to what. So interesting article, but the, um, you know, there's really no programs essentially that use a potentiometer joystick for the Atari. There's another article on the Atari. It's from here to Atari, and I... How did I miss that? All right, so looking back at the table of contents, there's a little department section. In the lower left-hand corner, it's very small. So that's like the continually running sort of 
classes of articles. And so there is, yeah, there's one listed from here to Atari. So it's by James Caporell, who's, again, about to kick off Antic here in a couple months. So in this article, he says, he says, last month I showed you how to use the load memory scan instruction of a display list to affect a scrolling screen. And this month, it's an Antic disassembler. So he's got a little basic program that'll disassemble a display list and tell you what it's all about. There's a nice little type table in here for the timing of everything. So uh, showing for 262 scan lines per frame, and there's 228 color clocks per scan line. Again, shows that there's 114 machine cycles per scan line, two color clocks per machine cycle. And if you're comparing, the 2600 had three color clocks per machine cycle. So that's how it got hits characteristic speed of 1.19 megahertz. So yeah, this little basic program essentially finds out, finds the display list and prints what it is. So about a 60 or 70 line basic program. That's it for the Atari specific stuff. There's a Pascal tutorial. You know, Pascal's not used that much anymore nowadays. Other languages have its roots in Pascal. Another example of some serendipity, there's a recursive use of GoSub in Microsoft Basic. So apparently Microsoft Basic allows recursion, at least. Another ad for Gorgon. Oh, Apple II stuff, of course. And then here's the very detailed 6502 bibliography part 39, listing all the 6502 references in all the various magazines, including some like newsletters and stuff. Looks like this one's covering magazines through about May of 81. It's about the latest I see here. So that might give us some idea of the sort of the lead time here. This is a December issue covering the May magazine. So yeah, we're talking five, six months. And that's it for Micro. Here's Michael Glazer with Softside. Michael's going to be one of the hosts of the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. I appreciate all the work he's done for my show and can't wait to hear the Cart by Cart podcast. It's December 1981, Volume 5, Number 3, Issue 39. The price is $3. This month's cover features Titan, the program of the month, and shows an astronaut on a trip to Titan, one of Saturn's moons. Will she succeed in her mining operation there? You'll need to play the game to find out. The cover was illustrated by Bill Geis. Microtext 1.0 Microtext 1.0 is a 16K word processor for the Atari, Terracity, and Apple computers. Now that SoftSide requires all programs submitted to be accompanied with an electronic documentation, it seems only logical that SoftSide would supply the tools to make that happen. Microtech makes that possible, but it also gives readers the opportunity to learn how to write a word processor themselves. The article also starts off by discussing that SoftSide will now accept assembly language programs instead of just basic. That's good to hear since you can only go so far with basic. Microtext is a simple word processor that allows a read-write to and from tape. In its current form, it's more of a typewriter than a full-fledged text editor but it does allow for backspaces, break lines between words, and delete entire lines, but to the end of the text, so they suggest checking for your files for errors often. That last feature seems a little bit extreme. They pretty much say that if you don't have a word processor, this is something to use, but there are far superior commercial products out there, so this is probably a coding opportunity and less of a viable tool. Atari Mania currently doesn't have Microtext available for download, so I'll make a point to get that uploaded for your viewing enjoyment. In the calendar section, I don't usually mention the calendar since these events have long since passed, but for this month, I'm going to make exceptions since this one entry is rather cute. It reads, December 25th, sponsored by the Editorial Munchkins at Softside Magazine. This meeting is scheduled for the annual arrival of St. Nicholas, alias Santa Claus. The one-day session is specially welcomed by computer orphans and dreaded by computer widows. Featured will be toys, games, adventure, space, and war, whatnots for everybody, and more computer equipment, for the person that used to be part of the family and is now part of a computer peripheral. Special requests will be received at the address below, but should not arrive any later than December 20th, as the elves must generate the mailing labels on your ELF 80 system, powered by hamsters on a treadmill. 
Unfortunately, hamsters has been out of strike due to the union's contract negotiations, and updating the mail list is slow and tedious process. Contact Santa Claus, Christmas Tree Lane, North Pole, Planet Earth, Solar System, Milky Way Galaxy. Titan. This game by William Morris and John Cope is an outer space mining simulation requiring 24K for tape or 32K for disc. The Atari version, which is really the only version we're interested in, comes in two parts to support both formats. The first part merges with the second with itself and requires the second part to be listed to tape or disc. Softside Atari DV subscribers receive a 40K version. Atari Mania does have a version in their collection, but it doesn't specify which one it is. Here's a summary of Titan. The year is 2050. Solar Mining Authority has finally decided to entertain bids from four different corporations for exclusive mining rights to Titan, one of Saturn's moons, for up to one year. Trivia time! Saturn currently has 62 moons, 53 of them have been officially named. Titan, Saturn's sixth ellipsoidal moon, is its largest moon and is 50% larger and 80% more massive than Earth's moon. Titan has a dense, mostly nitrogen atmosphere, and its surface is primarily composed of water, ice, and rocky materials. It takes 29 Earth years for Saturn to make a revolution around the Sun, so I assume they mean you have up to one Earth year before the mining contract ends. Okay, enough with space trivia. Your goal is to mine for dilithium-3 crystals, which are particular to Titan. The stakes are high, but the rewards can be great. You play as the superintendent of an operation and will be assigned one of four possible base sites. It will be your responsibility to make initial decisions concerning budgetary allotments, and the only mandatory purchase is a shiny new power plant. You have the option to purchase drill rigs, which are required for vertical mining, and robot miners, which carry out their horizontal digging. You can also invest in on-site R&D stations, which can increase your chances of finding those oh-so-desirable crystals. Of course, space is a dangerous place. One stray meteorite could damage the operation, so investing in deflection shield might be a wise idea. What about a refinery? When you obtain the precious ore, you will need to refine it or your profits will suffer. All this equipment will drain your power plant's energy, so you might need to spring for an extra energizer or two. Prices of all the extras will fluctuate, so be a smart shopper and keep your eye on those bargains. You've done a lot already, and you're only at the budgetary stage. Next is the management stage. Here you decide on your labor pools, shift lengths, nature of recreational facilities, as well as bonus system and safety program. What, no health plan or 401k? Sheesh. Gravitational fluctuations caused by Saturn cause frequent cave-ins, so invest in safety measures could pay dividends. Paying your workers will cut into your profits, but you will have a positive effect on their performance, but choosing when to adjust between efficiency versus output will take time and experience. Finally, you're ready to get to the actual mining of the Dilithium-3. When you find a strike, you must instruct your workers where to focus their efforts during the extraction process through careful interpretation of the data being fed back to you. After each work cycle, which lasts the month, you will have to make a budgetary decision for the following month. Each month at the helm will give you more experience to make better decisions. The rest of the article covers gameplay, something I think you'll look into if you're interested in playing the game, as well as Softside's excellent code breakdown. Although I didn't get a chance to play the game, this definitely shows a level of complexity that most typed-in games lack. The graphics are pretty simplistic, but I've seen worse. Even if the graphics aren't the best, gameplay is key, and from what I just read, this game seems to have a good grasp. Atari Mania has this as 3.5 out of 10, but with only one vote, so give it a try and add your score. Atari DV Survive. This is a graphical action game for one or two players, requiring the Atari with 32K and a joystick for each player. For those who are uninformed, the DV stands for disc version and were games on disc provided to subscribers of the service. This single-player version of an arcade-style shooter has you fighting for survival against attacking aliens. 
The playfield is peppered with mines. Use those mines to your advantage by positioning yourself between them and luring those attacking aliens to their doom. Don't worry, if you actually collide with the mines, you don't lose lives. But you do lose 10 points, so only your high score is at stake. Both you and your enemy's primary weapon are laser beams, but your shots take only one hit to kill, while the alien shots inflict a fifth of the total damage that you can incur. Don't worry, every squadron contains some star bases that can restore 5% of your energy, as well as add 25 points to your score. The gameplay is the same for two players, other than a cooperative nature of the gameplay. Still, any typed-in game that supports two players is aces in my book. The game is available on Atari Mania has a score of 3 out of 10 with one vote. Design Master. This is a 16K geometrical design program for the Atari. If you're old enough, you probably had some exposure to Spirograph. It sometimes be quite frustrating, especially for those smaller circles. Why not let all the computers do the drawing for us, and Design Master might be the answer to that request. This program creates nine different, mostly symmetrical designs, which include spiral, oscilloscope, and, and epicycloids. You can halt the drawing of the oscilloscope and epicycloid by pressing the S key, and you can change the background color by pressing the C key. This seems like the precursor to the 90s fractals, and it's a very impressive demo. Christmas tree! It's the holidays, and no Christmas is complete without the electronic version of the indoor shrubbery. Seeing that the other system's K-Biter submissions were shooters, I can only hope that running this demo on Christmas Eve caught the attention of old St. Nick and made the Christmas of 81 quite bountiful for Atari owners everywhere. If you were one of the unlucky ones that year not to have witnessed its bliss, you'll have to wait just a bit longer because it appears it doesn't exist on Atari Mania. But I'll do my best to get you an early stocking stuffer. In the meantime, here's an explanation of what you can look forward to. The demo draws a brightly colored Christmas tree with flashing lights and prints a festive Merry Christmas at the bottom. Feel free to modify the code to fit any holiday you celebrate that time of the year. Entertainment Tomorrow I always love to hear how the future is predicted and how close or far off those who are doing the predicting get. In this article, both Alan L. Wold and friend Dignazio do a bit of that. This article starts off by talking about Games Magazine's top 100 favorite games featured in the November-December 1981 issue. 26 of those were electronic, among the top computerized versions of classic board games and card games, such as chess, backgammon, and bridge. D&D from Mattel gets in there, as well as a game I used to play, Dark Tower by Milton Bradley. Even a version of the old jungle game, once called Stratego, but now called The Generals, is featured. Although games were a small portion of the larger offering of electronic and computerized recreation that year, it indicated a massive trend. The authors will now imagine where this trend might take us. I'll break down some of those predictions. Telecommute to work from home, head-mounted unit, which contains a wraparound LCD monitor, headphones, microphone, and short-range transmitter, skull-implanted biofeedback-enabled chip that'll let you directly integrate your brain with a network to a super-fast computer within your home to allow you to control thousands of devices, a home that contains a neural network of wires that simulate the human brain, electronic system in your home that will directly link to every other computer in the world with a mix of microwaves, fiber optics, and satellites. Using the helmet, you have access to news, music, movies, education, games, and be able to communicate with other people around the world. The helmet's display will have a graphic quality superior to normal vision. You'll have hundreds of retro games and thousands of new games at your fingertips as you hover over a menu in a virtual world selecting the game by thought. Multiplayer online gaming with AI-driven NPCs run on several servers hosted around the planet. And wearable computers incorporated into your clothes, sports equipment, and previously mentioned, our bodies. For the most part, the author really hits close to the mark of today's technological experience. Not bad for an article written 34 years ago. I wonder if you went back to 1947, they would have been able to predict the technology available in 1981. Well, that's about all the time I have. There are still a few more articles I would like to have covered, such as the inner workings of the 410 tape drive, how a floppy disk is constructed, and a couple other computer industry topics. 
I urge you to pick up this issue of Soft Side and discover it for yourself. Thanks for listening, and now back to Rob. And a special contribution, here's Kevin Savitz with a look at the APX catalog for winter 1981. Hi, uh, this is Kevin Savitz, and I am one of the hosts of Antic, the Atari 8-bit podcast. And today I am really excited to be looking over the winter 1981 Atari Program Exchange catalog with you. I've always pronounced it uh, APX, that's what it says right on the cover, APX, but I have learned that the folks at Atari call it Apex. For today, it's uh, Atari Program Exchange. And this was the third APX catalog, uh, the first one with a full color cover. Uh, it's uh, a beautiful line drawing uh, that's colored in by, I believe the artist's name is Tim McGinnis. I should really look him up. Um, and it's uh, a really cute drawing of uh, Santa Claus lying on the living room floor playing with an Atari 800. Looks like he was coming in to deliver presents. There's a tree, Christmas tree, just loaded with with boxes and things and uh, a fire going. But he, instead of, uh, he's got his bag kind of put off to the side and instead of uh, getting about his business of delivering presents, he's uh, on the floor hunkered down playing maybe uh, My First Alphabet uh, on an Atari 800. And uh, up in the corner, up the stairs, there are two little kids kind of looking, going, what is going on down there? So uh, he's been caught. Uh, It's pretty cute. So yeah, Atari Program Exchange is not actually a magazine. It is a catalog of user-written software for the Atari home computer systems. And this one is interesting. Like I said, it was the third one. But this is really still before Atari uh, started telling people how to develop for the computer. Um, uh, Dayray Atari hadn't been published yet, and Atari was about this time, maybe starting to get a little looser with some developer documentation, but it still wasn't easy to learn how to, how to program it, especially in machine language. So a lot of the stuff in here is in basic. This uh, APX has been called kind of the, the app store of the day. This is how you would get user-written software. Early in the catalog, it says that th- this issue of the software catalog is jam-packed with software, 91 programs altogether, over a third of which are new. But then it goes on to say that they're they're uh, proud of the quality and variety of programs more than the number. Some very talented Atari home computer owners from teenage from teenagers on up are contributing first-rate programs in all categories. It also says uh, one comment about our new programs. We've noticed that contributors are becoming more and more attuned to the needs of our primary market, the home user. They're designing programs that are very user-friendly. That's in quotes. Uh, that is, they are are visually and aurally interesting and are easy to use and hard to abuse and aren't intimidating to non-programmers. We're very encouraged by this trend. So then there's the uh, shows the results of the fall APX contest uh, in which they give prizes to the best programs uh, that were submitted since the last catalog came out, which was, uh, what, three months ago. It says, Greg Christensen, a 17-year-old Fullerton College freshman from Anaheim, California, won first place in the consumer category for his blockbuster program, Caverns of Mars. 
This game stopped all work in our offices when it arrived. An electronics hobbyist, Greg bought his Atari home computer with his own money less than a year ago and devoted a month and a half to turning out Caverns of Mars. So yeah, that program is kind of legendary and it went on to, uh, it's a great game and it went on to become a real Atari program eventually that was distributed on cartridge. Second prize goes to Gray Chang, a technical writer from Sunnyvale, California, for a delightfully different two-player chase game called Dog Days, in which two dogs scramble after hydrants. Yeah, it's a cute game. And then it says Mark Reed of South Charleston, West Virginia, captures third place with his amusing and seasonally timely skiing program, Downhill. The first place winner in the education category was My First Alphabet by Fernando Herrera. He would he will go on to create uh, the game Astro Chase. There's no escape. And uh, yeah, so he, he created this program for his uh, two-year-old son who uh, had vision problems. So he made this game that had big letters on the screen. And the story about that is all here uh, in a short bit in the in the catalog here. Second place goes to Ed Stewart, a systems analyst, and Ray Lyons, a graduate student in public administration of Columbus, Ohio, for a whimsical variation on Hangman called Letterman. Third place goes to Richard Whitealia of Marquette, Michigan, for Number Blast, which is a multiplication game. And another educational game tied for third place called Quizmaster, a dual-purpose quiz creator and quiz taker program. In the category of business and professional applications slash personal finance and record keeping, wow, that's a mouthful, uh, Jerry Falkerhan, a manufacturing director from San Jose, captures first place for his money tracking program, Family Cash Flow. Second place winners in that category are Lynn and Ronald Marcuse of Freehold, New Jersey, uh, were two-time winners in our first contest. This time, they win for Weekly Planner, a program that can save us many an apology for forgotten engagements. And I believe that's the program that eventually will become Atari's TimeWise. And then third place goes to William Rice, a hydraulic salesman from San Jose, California, for Hydraulic Program, HiSIS, a comprehensive program that calculates 14 different parameters for hydraulic cylinders, motors, and pumps, and includes a summary display of the data. I just love that about that sort of thing about these APX catalogs that uh, they have general interest programs like a, a game or time management and then this really niche stuff like like something a hydraulic salesman would need he couldn't have sold more than a dozen copies of that program and finally in the system software category first place goes to patrick malarkey a computer engineer in bellevue washington for getting us out of the doghouse with many users by coming up with extended fig forth This version fully implements the standard fourth defined in the fourth interest group implementation guide, and it includes many extensions to accommodate Atari computer features. Second place goes to Sheldon Lehman of Oak Park, Michigan for InstEdit, an exceptional and fun-to-use character set editor that simultaneously displays the character being edited in all six character modes. That's cool. And third place winner is Joseph J. 
Robel of Rochester, New York, who contributed T colon a text display device. This compact program uses a creative approach to solve the problem of intermixing text and graphics on the same line. So yeah, I think there's a nice mix uh, of of new software that that they chose here. Uh, a lot of still geeky stuff, programming tools, but also programs that will uh, entertain the family and allow you to manage your finances. And then on the next page, they uh, talk about the the next contest deadline. Also mentions what the prizes are for the consumer entertainment and personal interest and development category. Uh, first prize gets $3,000, second prize gets $2,000, third prize gets $1,000. And all the other categories, education, business and professional apps, and system software, first prize is $2,000, second prize is $1,500, and third prize was $750. Next page, there's an interesting little frequently asked questions list called Ask APX, and they uh, answer sort of questions like, what sort of effort does Atari put into APX programs? Why aren't your manuals typeset? I have a software package I want sold for $200. Can I have some assurances on price? And they're basically, no, no. We Our maximum price is 50 bucks. We set the price. No one's going to buy your $200 program. All right, so now that we're at page 10 of this 60-odd page catalog, we're actually at the catalog part where it starts uh, listing software. First category is the personal finance and record-keeping category. There's a big new icon by the Family Cash Flow, which was one of the prize winners in this catalog. There's also Data Management System, which was another one by Ronald and Lynn Marcuse. They will turn out to be prolific authors of APX software. Newspaper Route Management Program, another one of those those uh, very niche little apps that couldn't have sold that many. There's a financial asset management system, and, oh, I like this one, Bowler's Database, a very friendly, easy-to-use program for keeping track of your bowling scores throughout the season. That's uh, $10.45. I hope that one day Wade will review that on the Inverse Ataski podcast. Next page, uh, Business and Professional Applications. One of the options is Decision Maker by James L. Brunn. Should we open a branch office in Tucson, Phoenix, or Flagstaff? Which meets my financial needs best? Mutual funds, money market certificates, or real estate? Should I buy another disk drive for my system? Yes. Uh, A videotape recorder or a new stereo? We're always faced with decisions. Big ones, small ones, in-between ones. Sometimes the answers are obvious, but many times they're not. And so Decision Maker is a program to help your business help you with your business and personal decisions involving as many 10 different choices and 10 different factors. Also, uh, this is interesting, enhancements to Graphit. So if you own the Atari Graphit program, which is a graph making program, uh, these are these are mods that make it better. I find it slightly interesting that Atari would allow people to basically write enhancements to their commercial software rather than just integrating the enhancements into the program itself. Next page, we have the personal interest and development category. Happy anniversary, mom and dad. Clean your room. So banner generator allows you to yell at people using your printer. 
You can turn out one-liners up to six inches high and as long as 80 characters using your Atari 825 80-column printer. Nice. So, yeah, you can waste paper and ink for only $12.95. It's available on cassette and disc. Yes, so most of the programs in this catalog are available on both cassette and diskette, usually for the same price. Everything's available on disc. Some of the stuff isn't available on cassette. I'm not really sure why. For instance, on the next page here, keyboard organ, which lets you uh, play little songs on with your Atari, is available on diskette for $17.95, but it's not available on cassette. And as I'm turning the pages here, I am noticing there are no screenshots, which is, I know, that <laughs> something that Rob rails against when he's looking at uh, type-in computer programs. And this is sort of the same thing. There are some adorable line drawings throughout the catalog, but no screenshots, which is kind of strange. Who's going to throw down 13 or $20 for a program based on the description only without even being able to see it? I mean, if I was going to get player piano, I'd want to know if this is a cute, colorful program, or it's a boring screen that looks like a text adventure. But I guess uh, you have to use your imagination for now. Then we turn the page to the education category, which uh, has something that intrigued me when I was a kid and still does, called Stereo 3D Graphics Package. Stereo 3D Graphics Package can introduce you to the world of real 3D. These programs generate stereograms that let you see a wireframe stereo model in true three dimensions. Most of the stereogram drawing is in the Atari computer's high-resolution graphics mode. However, the program also draws a red and green stereo pair in medium-resolution graphics mode so that users not owning a stereoscope and not being able to direct stereo view can use inexpensive anaglyphic red and green glasses to learn to direct on-screen stereo viewing. 3D on your Atari. Nice. And here's another new one, Hickory Dickory by Dale Disharoon, which is a program for learning to read clocks. Many children today grow up with only digital clocks around the house. When they're faced with a traditional clock with hands, they're often stumped. Hickory Dickory can help children master the translation process between these two ways of telling time. I know some kids today who need that program. Next page, we're still in the education category. Uh, there's Number Blast, Quizmaster, Mugwump, and Lemonade by Bob Polaro. So, Lemonade Stand, which was the first program published by APX, catalog number 20001. Lemonade Stand, which I think came free on the Apple. It's not fair that we Atari users had to pay $12.95 for it. I'm going to write a letter. Now I've turned to page 27, and we're on to the entertainment category, Eastern Front, which gets a whole page to itself. And then the next page is the source code for Eastern Front, which is a new offering in this catalog. Now it's interesting, Eastern Front, the game, uh, $29.95 for what is one of the most well-known and most popular Atari games. And then the source code, $49.95. So $20 more to get the assembly source. 
It says, to get maximum benefit for this package, you need a good understanding of assembly language programming, and you should be comfortable using the assembler editor cartridge. Yikes. No, no one has ever been comfortable using the assembler editor cartridge. It's a terrible cartridge. Next page has Code Cracker, which I think is a ripoff of Mastermind, but who can tell without screenshots? And the next page, it turns out the entertainment category is, is the biggest category in this catalog, has uh, several things, including a tank with an exclamation point. It says, allow yourself plenty of room when you and your opponent start playing a tank. You'll be happily squirming in your chair as you maneuver your two tanks around the battlefield. In this two-player game, played with joysticks, your mission is to destroy both your opponent's tanks before he or she destroys yours. So as I go through this catalog, I kind of like that it highlights the stuff that's new. It highlights the stuff that has won an award. And they try to be impartial. It's not all glowing reviews throughout. They try to keep it even-handed. If uh, the manual isn't is only okay, they tell you. If the program is is lacking certain features, they try to let you know. That seems fair. It's not all puffery, and it probably reduced returns from unhappy customers. Now we're getting near the end of the entertainment section, and we're on page forty of the sixty-page catalog. Now it seems for some of these things, they're they're just not trying as hard to sell these things, or they they know it's not going to sell. Instead of getting a a whole column, even a whole page to describe a program, it's it's a half a column. You get maybe fifty words of uh, description. So there's a two-page spread of basic adventures, that is text adventures. So there's one, two, three. There's six of them on this two-page spread. Uh, there's one called Castle, Wizard's Gold, Sleazy Adventure. Sultan's Palace, Alien Egg, and Chinese Puzzle. On the next page, we're back to programs with longer descriptions that they seem more interested in trying to sell. Uh, Space Chase by Fernando Herrera and Solitaire by Mark Reed, a computerized version of the standard one-player Las Vegas card game. Next page, uh, Pro Bowling, Space Trek, 747 Landing Simulator or when I play it, 747 Crashing Simulator. And now we're on to the System Software category, which is the nerdy stuff. Super Sort is a high-speed sorting routine you can call from your basic programs. Then Sound Editor by Bob Smith, who I think worked at Atari. And then Insomnia, another sound editor, uh, written by Bob Frazier. They cost the same. No screenshots of either. Which one should I buy? I don't know. And Bliss, which prints out your Atari basic programs in a clear, easy-to-follow format. Then we get into disk-fixing programs and two different basic renumbering utilities. Screen dump utility, variable changing tools, basic cross-reference utility. Lots of little tools for basic programmers. So now we're almost at the back of the catalog, and there's a tiny one-page hardware section, which, spoiler alert, will be dropped in, in future catalogs. There's joystick plugs, a 5-pin DIN connector for your monitor, a 13-pin SIO plug, and an SIO socket. Um, let's see, it was $9.95 for an SIO plug if you're going to make your own cable, only $4.95 for an SIO socket. Don't know what you do with that. 
And a 2716 EEPROM cartridge, that's $39.95. This kit contains the pre-assembled socketed cartridge board along with all plastic and metal parts necessary to construct your own EEPROM left side cartridge for the Atari 400-800 personal computers. Nice. You could make a cartridge with a maximum capacity of 4K. You must have access to 2716 EEPROM programming equipment to use these cartridges. So yeah, a blank cartridge that you can program is uh, $39.95. Really not much cheaper than buying Pac-Man or Missile Command, I think. Catalog closes out with ordering information and a couple of order forms. On the inside back cover, this is interesting, it lists programs in order of RAM size. So from 8K cassette, if you're a poor slob with an Atari 400 and cassette system, there's uh, maybe 10 programs to choose from. Then 16K cassette, 24K cassette, 32K cassette, and then 16K disc, 24K disc, 32K disc, and finally 40K disc. There's only a few things there uh, in that category for the big spenders with uh, all that money for RAM and a disc drive, including uh, the newspaper route management system, source code for Eastern Front, and financial asset management system, and a couple of others. And finally, in the lower left corner of the back cover is a line drawing of Santa Claus. He's got, in one hand, his big sack of toys, and in the other hand, an Atari 400. And it looks for all the world like he's stealing someone's Atari. He's just sneaking out of the place with someone's Atari machine. Sure doesn't look like he's delivering it. Looks like he's taking it away. That's it. That's the Winter 1981 Atari Program Exchange Catalog. I now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. Thanks, Kevin. You can catch more of Kevin on the Antic Podcast, and on Twitter you'll find him making lots and lots of puns. Now let's do some game reviews. This is the part 2A of Flight Simulators. Originally we were just going to do two parts, but Chris and I got talking so long about all these simulators and I didn't want to rival half of an Intellivisionaries episode, so I'm going to split these up into two. So there's part 2A and 2B. Part 2A is the mostly propeller aircraft, although there's one early jet era simulator that cre- that crept in here. And we've finished off a couple of these simulators we missed from the civilian episode. But Chris is a commercial airline pilot and longtime Atari user. Part 1 of our flight simulator coverage was back in episode 12. This is part 2A of the military flight simulators. Yeah, should we pick up where we <laughs> where we left yeah. off from last time? Absolutely. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. All right. So, yeah, talking about we so we missed some from the civilian episode, so before we get into the military stuff, we'll talk about 747 landing simulator. Yes. Yes, indeed. So this um, this 747 landing simulator, this is an APX title from 1982, I believe. Oh, 81, 81, sorry. So 81, very yeah. very early on. Um I would imagine had to be one of APX's first offerings, or certainly in that first uh, batch. I can't remember exactly what year APX started, but yeah, it was eighty-one. Yeah. So. Okay. So wow. So maybe uh, maybe this was in their kind of initial cadre, or certainly um, some of the first stuff they put out. And uh, this was actually not a title that I encountered growing up. Although I think if I had, I would have been very interested. And no, I didn't either. Yeah. Uh, basically, the the notion is in kind of the same. Um, Kind of the same way that Deadstick 
uh, seeks to kind of recreate just one phase of flight. This is the same thing with uh, with this product. Obviously, title kind of says it all there. Um, very, very ambitious. Uh, certainly, a 747 is is a pretty complicated machine. Four throttles, uh, you know, barely enough room. Certainly, even you know, at the highest uh, resolution graphics to fit certain things on there. So there has to be a, a kind of a decision made. Uh, what information do you display? How do you display it? And um, if you look at the manual, the manual for this is on archive.org. It's a really nice uh, kind of scan. Um, you can really see that there really is a lot of depth to this to this product. Uh, a lot of a lot of things are modeled. Uh, you know, a landing gear. You know, throttle control. And the, the whole point is to try to um, you know you're given kind of a way to follow a navigational beacon in and, and eventually land. The the real problem is the uh, kind of what the way information is displayed, it almost um, kind of the, the font that's used, it almost reminds you of the, the numbers in Star Raiders um, in kind of the, the way that that looks, but it's uh, uh, it's kind of a hodgepodge of information. It's hard to, so you do get a, a little graphical rep- representation of an airplane, but if you take no action starting up, uh, another airplane will come out of the a blue and crash. So, um, yeah, you know, yeah, which is, or if you if you try to use the arrow keys, I think up arrow, it it says instrument error and you crash. So there's a really complicated and uh, kind of elegant scoring mechanic used here, and that's detailed in the manual where you run out of fuel and it's all it, honestly it's almost like error codes, like error 144 was, you know, Buddha, where <laughs> you look at it, it seems like kind of a, a similar kind of rubric where it's a long list of things where, you know, if you're left a course, right a course, whatever. So uh, there really is, is quite a bit here. It just, um, and, you know, I, I was able to, to kind of, after struggling, kind of trying to follow cues, but it, and kind of sort of get kind of pointed in towards the runway, but uh, it's uh, ultimately, um, it, it's it's very kind of impressive for modeling all this, but because it doesn't really uh, kind of live in that world, or you have instrumentation that looks familiar, uh, it's pretty tough. Uh, it kind of becomes an exercise in in kind of figuring out um, you know exactly kind of a, a very different set of what we're accustomed to with with flying. Uh, yeah, it's like the the stories ahead of the presentation. Yes, 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 indeed. So. Uh, I have to say, you know, E for effort, I can't imagine. Uh, this is, I'm sure this is probably a one-man, uh, as many of the APX programs were one-man or one-person kind of development uh, deal. And um, just if there was a way to kind of extract the, uh, um, you know, the scoring or kind of put this in even even like a Flight Simulator 1 wireframe representation where the instruments are, you know, kind of, yeah. d- kind of dull it down to... Um, and, you know, when learning to fly, we call it the six-pack, where you've got your, you know, airspeed, you know, altimeter, uh, artificial horizon, and then, uh, you know, your, you know, vertical speed, you know, turn coordinator, and, and so on and so forth, where, or maybe even just knock it out, say, all right, three instruments, kind of kind of like what SoloFlight does, where you've got just what's very important, even if you have to change how it looks a little bit, um, that might have been a, a little bit of a better solution. But for gosh sake, it's 1981, it's a 747, um, clearly all the guts of, you know, actually maneuvering a, a plane on and bring it in are, are here. It's just the um, kind of graphics and kind of the way it's presented. Uh, it's just a little bit hard to follow. But if you're really looking for uh, kind of a, you know, to dive in, and honestly, there's a pretty good explanation of like how a glide slope works and 
um, just some kind of basic aviation stuff. So the manual is uh, is maybe good to refer to that if, if someone's looking to, you know, create an Atari 8-bit flight simulator or something like that. Uh, it's it's certainly worth checking out for that. But uh, otherwise, pretty pretty Spartan, pretty difficult to uh, to translate into some kind of uh, something that where you can say, oh, I, I you know I was able to to accomplish this or that. It's pretty tough. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't get past the plane crashing straight into me as it was taking off, and I'm landing. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think this one, I think it requires basic too. I think it will. Uh, I had a little trouble running this. Um, I think I had to actually go elsewhere. The Atari Mania image was uh, giving me fits, so I think I had to go to one of the other sites. But it does require basic, so that's uh, if you're going to boot it up, it is um, that uh, that is a necessity. So, but uh, otherwise, yeah. that's pretty much all I have to say about that one yeah it's a it's a tough game and yeah um, <laughs> don't think i'll be re- revisiting this one yeah no so certainly i would say if you're if you're thinking about kind of trying to tackle this i would go for dead stick and uh, you get just more feedback whether you know right, from, yeah. from the controllers where uh it's very much sink or swim you know if you do something wrong it's it's uh yeah you get you know the plane crashes or it's it's a pretty um, it's it's a pretty kind of, uh, like I said, black and white landscape where not a lot of room for error, which, you know, may or n- may not be the case in kind of real life. But, uh, but yeah, definitely, I'd say pretty difficult. Yeah. And then the other one we missed from last time was Jumbo Jet Pilot. Yeah, so this is um, this is Thorn EMI. So I, I want to say that overseas, and this was 1982, so this is early on as well. And I know there are um, kind of rabid fans of, of this one, and I might have a different opinion of this if I, again, encountered this, um, you know, growing up. I actually do think I, I saw it, but I didn't, I didn't give it uh, too, much, too much airplay. Uh, I will kind of echo a lot of the comments that uh, were just made about 747 Landing Simulator and apply them here. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, same aircraft that's being modeled, but this one you, do, you, know, you can kind of do from, you know, takeoff to touchdown. And it's just... Um, Again, a kind of an impossible kind of task to dive in, and you've got to you know, update all these you know, instrumentation, and how do you get how to achieve a good frame rate, and you know, kind of build in some modicum of, of control and user input. And uh, again, it, 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 there is also a lot of depth to this one, a lot that's there. But again, the um, I felt like this would you probably we have a, a kind of a very rudimentary view of the outside, and I think it would, probably would have helped this one would be say just forget the outside, let's just stick to instrument, and uh, um, and maybe that would have allowed for uh, for something that translates to that's slightly more realistic. I have no doubt that again, if you learn the control scheme and if you really dive in and um, and and kind of you know coach yourself up on exactly with what you're seeing just to kind of making control inputs but again it's it's not quite as foreign as 747 landing simulator but you know kind of reference the standard six pack of instruments that we're used to in flight simulator or the kind of modified version that you see in some other ones like solo flight and uh and some that we'll talk about it's just doesn't quite do it and it's very very early on uh so i think for 82 i think we have to give this one a little bit of a pass um because it does take on just an enormous, you know, task of you know all phases of flight, whether it's you know takeoff, climb, cruise, descent, and landing. But uh, yeah, I guess the paradigms for flight simulators hadn't really been set yet. Yeah, so kind of still experimenting with stuff. I- indeed, where um, e- even you know flight simulator one from 
you know, from Bruce artwork was, uh, you know, that, that instrument panel was there, but the, the wireframe graphics and everything were just pushing everything to the absolute hilt. So yeah. in this case, um, you know, it's, I want to say it's maybe four colors. So definitely in, um, uh, I'd love to know what, what graphics mode it is, but, uh, yeah, I didn't look at this. I didn't, for some other games we're going to talk about, I did check out some graphic stuff, but I didn't, I didn't look okay. at this one. Yeah. So, so this one, I would say certainly, I, I know there, there are folks who really, really like it, who kind of, you know, grew up with it. I think, uh, um, this is one of the many games that I think maybe overseas folks would, would have, uh, would have encountered that, uh, um, you know, games, uh, the, the one big one from, um, from overseas that I can remember was a much later one was Electric Light. That was uh, oh sure, um, yeah. But I mean, that's '86, and that's you know a go- English software company. There you I think, go. Yeah. And I, I say that I, I would hope that English software is in the UK, but gosh, maybe it's not. I shouldn't <laughs> assume that. But uh, um, but yeah, I just uh, it was uh, kind of kind of tough to really get into and, and kind of sink my teeth into. But worth checking out, especially if you remember it. Uh, you know, there is uh, quite a bit there, but. Um, I would find it's it's a slightly empty in that um, it's difficult to kind of take that and really drop it onto some of the kind of other flight simulators of the time or that would follow on immediately after where yeah. you get a much more realistic or uh, you know kind of sense of uh, instrumentation that 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 really kind of translates to what you would see if you jumped in a real airplane. So yeah, so, yeah I'll probably give that a pass as well. Yeah, understood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The um, so I guess the next group of simulators to talk about is the the microprose simulators, and so there there are three that I know about, and I think I don't know if you found any more, but there's Hellcat Ace, Spitfire Ace, and Mig Alley Ace. Yes, indeed. All all by microprose, and they're all by Sid Meier as well. Um, yeah, you know, I think actually Mig Alley Ace, I think the point man on that is Andy Hollis, who uh, oh right, yeah, I did see we that. chatted about. Um, but you're right, Sid Meier does have his name in the other two, but Mig Alley is is Andy Hollis who. Was the uh, also a primary programmer on well quite a bit in micros. He's actually got a you know, really really if you read his bio, it's it's really reads like kind of I I would imagine if uh, you know like I I said many times if I hadn't been fortunate enough to or if I had something kind of medically disqualifying me from flying, I would have definitely pursued the uh, the programming angle. And I can certainly think as like a nine or ten year old kid, if I if you could have said, all right, pick someone, I would have. Looking back now, certainly look at Andy Hollis's career and say that's a pretty darn good <laughs> career to have. So, you know, he was able to uh, really just knock it out of the park with Microprose for many years and went on to Origin, and it's just really kind of gone on and you know, like kind of logical step. And I think he's still, I think he's, he's still active doing something with with games today. I can't. Uh, recall exact exactly what that is but uh you know he's really really has his um you know has his kind of mark on uh, some really really kind of amazing games that uh and some some great history as well but uh, yes you're right the other oh yeah because he was accused kennedy approach that yes was well. yes indeed yes, yes. Okay. and uh would have loved to have been in the room for that pitch i imagine it was probably met with a little bit of resistance but uh certainly glad they they did it but um but yeah and he was also a, a primary programmer on uh, f-15 strike ago which we'll talk about a little bit but you know really i think one of the um kind of go-to folks especially in the early days of microprose um yeah. but uh and, uh and yeah so we'll kind of look at these three games it's kind of yeah. connected just because they they play it very similarly mm-hmm. and uh the graphics you know look the same and but yeah so hellcat ace and spitfire ace are one player games then mig ace has that two-player option the split screen which that's right 
that Mega Ace, I think, was the first sort of combat simulator that I had, and I, I just remember just being just amazed at the ability to track somebody down, you know, and to and to use the the altitude versus uh, speed trade off. Absolutely, um, it, it's really it's worth noting. And again, it's uh, if if you load these three up, you'll see they they basically share the the same engine, but it's it's really pretty amazing uh i think one of the things that struck me the first time i i loaded any one of these sims was if you head towards the sun which is of course represented by you know a somewhat jaggy you know <laughs> yeah but your vantage point will change the the colors of the screen change so that's and you know position relative to the sun was a really really big deal in if you go kind of trace the origins of dogfighting back to world mm-hmm. war one uh there was a german ace who Oh boy, I'm going to botch the pronunciation, but I think it was um, Bolka and his rules. Like rules in German, I think, is dicta. And it was this famous kind of, he published this kind of, well, I mean, did you really have a white paper in 1914? But basically, <laughs> it was called Dicta Bolka. It was Bolk's rules, uh, or Bolka's rules. And uh, it talked about uh, kind of opti- optimum way to approach. And, you know, you wanted the sun at your back. So. Uh, you know, if you if the enemy kind of turned to face you, he'd be staring right into the sun. Um, yeah. So there were precepts there that went back, you know, many many years to the very beginnings of kind of dogfighting, and carried forward into certainly in the in Migalies, where it's the the famous um, kind of standoff of the of the fifties, right? The F eighty six saber, which is the uh, kind of iconic uh, uh, swept wing silver jet that. Uh, Actually, yeah. Chuck Yeager talks quite a bit about in his uh, autobiography. It was, um, the, and the only thing I'll mention about this because it is getting a little bit off topic, but um, the F eighty six could not do. It could not start up on its own. Uh, it, it they had a they had a kind of a profane name for it. You can Google it if you want. It's probably not appropriate for the podcast here, but um, they basically they had to get uh, get a big cart um, like an air cart and just basically get the get the turbine blades spinning a little bit almost like uh akin to kind of rolling your you know your stick shift car down the hill and popping the clutch and you know and starting it up kind of thing um (laughs) but the the joke was if 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 korea had ever taken some sort of uh big initiative to blow up these uh these air carts or these carts the the war would have been over um (laughs) they wouldn't have been able to get any f-86s off the ground and everything else so and I think they Saber went through a lot of different models. This might have just been the very early. Remember, the early jet flight was yeah. was still only a couple of years old at this point. Um, yeah, and, they, and then just the number of designs that went through sure. in the subsequent years. You know, these are the the jets with the, the air intake was the was the nose cone right. instead of the nose cone. You have the air intake. Yeah, in. Absolutely, and, uh, just how that evolved. And, and and from an aeronautical standpoint too, they were still kind of. Um, you know, the swept wing was, you know, this, this airplane didn't go supersonic, but it certainly went a lot faster than uh, a lot of other ones. So um, there, there was still kind of a, a steep learning curve for that where, you know, some of the things had to be kind of figured out actually in operation. Um, you know, oh, you know, I got this sort of buffet or this sort of thing. So, uh, but the, the, the kind of oft-referred to standoff between the uh, reference to Korean War, at least from an air war standpoint, is the F-86 Sabre versus the MiG-15. Um, very similar looking aircraft too. I mean, really, uh, aside from yeah, are, yeah. a, a few kind of antennas, and uh, you know, if you were to put the um, uh, you know kind of the uh, 
the Korean insignia on, an, on a saber, you almost wouldn't be able to tell them apart. Although the intake is a little bit different, and they're like I said, really some minutia that you have to look for. But um, but the F eighty six did perform just a little bit better, and of course the um, you know the folks would say that uh, um, you know pilot wise it was uh, you know it, everything being equal. Of course, each side thinks, well, I've got the advantage because you know every pilot's great and, and this or that, but. Um, it was, you know, it's it's looked at a lot of times in when you're talking about, you know, tactics or advantages or you know, energy management, and um, it, it calls forward. There's a, a very very interesting another another book called. Uh, uh, it's about uh, you know a guy named John Boyd who was many things. Really, kind of a character. It's it's a very very neat book. It's just called Boyd, and it's by an author Robert Corum. It's uh, um, it's it's a great read just for anyone interested in kind of airplane design or um, kind of dogfighting tactics. It's actually his life story. He's like I said, it's a very interesting in its own right. But um, in the same way that uh, these kind of rules were created in you know in World War One and, and adapted on, and um, Boyd actually came up with something called the aerial attack study, which um, was really the first time that uh, a kind of um, almost academic presentation on this notion of energy management came into right. into play. Now this was absolutely used and referenced in, you know, World War 1 and World War 2, but with jet engines and, you know, faster aircraft, um, kind of the game changed a little bit. So Boyd is known for many things. They've actually got uh, I think uh, Boyd Hall, he's he's passed away now, but uh, um, I think they have Boyd Hall at one of the I think the place they do Red Flag, which is, I always get this wrong, and I apologize, either Nellis or Fallon. Um, Nellis Air Force Base, I think, is is where they have it. So he is... Um, Nellis is Vegas. Yeah, okay, it's probably Nellis. Yeah, that's wrong. Oh, here, I'll, I'll look it up. Yep, it's Nellis. Okay, so. perfect. So, you know, so he kind of expands on this further. And uh, advantages and, um, you know, kind of aircraft maneuvering and, and these sorts of things are, are really explained in depth. But it circling back to, you know, Miguel Elias, this notion of, the placement of the sun, something like that, um, can absolutely lead, you know, very, very easily into how you manage your energy. If you're going right into the sun, you're thinking, oh, geez, I can't see it. or so that airplane gets slow, and now you might be kind of shark bait. So it's it's very, very telling that you know from the kind of the roots of Microprose and you know Sid Meier and you know uh, Wild Bill Steely. Um, that this was important. I'm sure it took you know a lot of you know color clocks or color cycles to do this. I'm sure there was you know a big trade-off made where you know if you had just said forget it, head towards the sun, it's just a, almost a static image. You know that that's <laughs> going to free up CPU power, and we can uh, I don't know you know uh, maybe can we can fire the guns faster, or we can achieve you know kind of realism in some other aspect. But the fact that it was important to them really demonstrates that um, to me that you know, a relatively small thing was uh, that that realism was their intent. So I, I really like that for, for that reason. Uh, and if you, you know, if you load it up, it's, like you said, all three of these are, are fairly similar. But you actually get a pretty decent frame rate. And I have to say, yeah. um, I, I knew MIG Alias had the, uh, the kind of head-to-head and co-op mode, which I'd love to um, chat with you about in just a second. But even just one of the the other ones, so Hellcat Ace or Spitfire Ace, you know, to just load it up and you get the the, the I kind of mentioned it in the civilian sim where um, the Microprose loading screen obviously evolved quite a bit, but it's that same kind of entry where it's kind of stark, but you get this you know series of um, you know starting with uh, 
you know, maybe just uh, one one enemy. The the goal is to shoot down the Japanese plane. Okay, well, I can do that. But even just that, as you kind of progress through, it gets kind of a little bit more difficult, a little bit more difficult. It's kind of compelling. You get hooked in a little bit. So um, yeah, the, you know, the, yeah, the idea of the completing these missions. Yeah. And, and- Moving on, yeah, and and also, Microprose was, uh, you know, they certainly did other sims like you know, submarine, sub similar silent services one, um, and this kind of attention to detail where, uh, obviously, with the hardware constraints of the time, there's no way to actually know. Hey, this looks like Midway Island. Hey, this looks like Wake Island. You know, hey, this looks like Hiroshima or something like that. It's all kind of green. You know, you might, you're not even. <laughs> it's just yeah, kind of nebulous, but. Um, it's obvious. Yeah, the ground is green, the sky is right. blue, and that's it. Yeah, or, you know, this is, the differentiation between the airplanes, shoot down the Japanese Zero, shoot down the float plane. Well, they all look pretty <laughs> similar. You get a... a bit planes, yeah, yeah, you know, it's something that's, uh, you know, kind of familiar, uh, almost 2600-like, um, you yeah. know, player missile graphics or something that, you know... It, now, I will say, you know, that the aircraft, they do move, and the, you know, the size kind of moves around, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is, is certainly impressive for the time. But um, you're talking about pretty much the same model. Maybe they throw a different color on it or something like that. But uh, this attention to historical detail, where it, it's kind of that almost willing suspension disbelief, where because it's framed in this, you know, you are, you know, over Wake Island, you know, simulating what happened on, you know, such and such a date, Microprose was always very, very good at at detailing that, or at the very least, kind of taking it to the level where um, you could kind of fill in the blanks, knowing that uh, you know that, that that it wasn't providing a perfect picture or a super realistic notion of you know one plane looks exactly like the other plane, but because they really did their homework and it kind of came from that place of. Uh, in the case of um, Hellcat and Spitfire, is actual real life that that happened, you know, many many years ago. It just it didn't. It, at least for me, it didn't bother me as much. It was that uh, um, was kind of uh, um, you know a way that they could kind of make up for the shortcomings, and it was kind of neat in you know in kind of predating any type of you know large-scale campaign that we'd see in, in kind of more modern flight sims. Uh, you know, you stack up, you get that little thing, you get the, you know, the victories in the case of uh, um, Hellcat Ace, and, you know, you get the a little, uh, what is it? It's uh, it's actually probably would never fly today, but uh, somewhat uh, somewhat interesting. The uh, uh, You get a little snippet of one of the, it's not, you know, the Marines... Army, Navy song, something, something very American. You get like oh, four bars. Yeah, of it. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what it is. And then if you lose, you get the, um, you know, some sort of, you know, kind of uh, mildly offensive Japanese version of something. And it says, you know, uh, you know, the war is over or so, something like that. So um, kind of an interesting kind of snapshot there of, uh, of that. But it does let you kind of string victories together and you get the sense that maybe in a very loosely organized sense, you're kind of pursuing some campaign, making your way through, um, you know, certain parts of the uh, the campaign that are related to uh, whatever the title is, Hellcat Ace or Spitfire Ace. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say you. Um, as I recall, you could, there's like like 15 or so selections, but you can only start like the first 10, and then you've got to. Oh, like, that's right. In order to get those those final campaigns, you actually have to like start. At the tenth, and kind of keep going. Oh, that's right. So you can't choose yeah. the, all. Of them. No, that's that's true, and that's um, so again a, a real sense of accomplishment um, in kind of the uh, you know I know it's very common nowadays you know achievements and unlockable stuff, yeah. but it's kind of the same thing where 
Um, you know, even many years ago, you had uh, something that might not be revealed to you unless you kind of demonstrated. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but that would uh, certainly lay the groundwork for their later titles, which really took this um, kind of notion and really ran with it. But um, I, I think I remember on the other podcast, you said you, you remember playing Miguel Ace growing up. Is that right? I did, yeah. I didn't play Hellcat Ace or Spitfire Ace, but I had a copy of Mig Ace and played that a lot. So so this one, um, I just want to say again, it was uh, Andy Hollis was the point man in this, where Sid Meier was, um, what, you know, was the primary, or you know, the designer had his name on it for uh, the first two. And while I think it certainly shares the same engine, same presentation, you can, as we said, load all three of these and really see um, and just be able to, you could jump right in. I mean, it's, it's, the controls are, are identical. But Miguelies had this option of head-to-head or cooperative mode. And right. this is really, uh, and I have to say, I, I played Miguelies a little bit growing up, but I, I wish I had played it more because this would have been a great thing to play um, either head-to-head cooperatively. And I hate to say it, I don't think I ever did. Um, I, again, maybe... I just wasn't aware. I mean, how, how could you miss it? It's right there. The, the choices in the in the kind of famous microprose, you know, menu offerings or entry entry <laughs> point in the game. But um, you know, split screen. That's uh, that's a very kind of difficult thing. You know, even even given the fact that you know this engine was, I'm sure there was a lot of trickery that had to be done to manage. And you've got you know you could have um, you know the top one going you know up and the bottom one going down, so to speak. So you're really talking about updating and pushing, um, you know, almost double the amount of, uh, you know, of info or, you know, to the, yeah. and, it, and it really, it, it doesn't really chug it. It moves right along. Um, and just being able to do a split screen dogfight where you're, you're trying to get your buddy or, or actually the cooperative mode is, is really uh, pretty ingenious to where there's a lot of logic built in to where if the other guy gets shot down, you can actually keep going. And, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, at, at some point there's, you know, some sort of determination made where, all right, you failed the mission, but um, there's a way to actually kind of continue on and, and win, even if uh, you lose your wingman. So, uh, oh, I didn't remember that. I didn't, I didn't test the cooperative this time. I didn't remember that you could read. Or would, would would the other guy jump back in, or how? You know, how that gosh, I, I can't remember, but I just know if the objective was say, you know, you need to, to down this many planes. If let's say it was fifteen and you get ten, and then your, you know, your flying partner gets shot down, you can um, you can jump right back in and, and actually complete the mission. Then I think on the subsequent one, whatever the next one is, I think then your uh, you know your player two is able to to go on. So just um, certainly, I, that's the first. Certainly, I mean, definitely the first head-to-head -head cooperative flight simulator um, in 1983. I would, I would have to think I'll go out on a limb and say, at least in the 8-bit <laughs> Atari realm, or certainly 8-bit realm in general, that was the case. And uh, um, hats off to Andy Hollis and the Microprose team for making it, you know, even any type of achievable frame rate. That's one thing. These games are, yeah. are pretty simplistic. You can, I, I'd love to know, you get almost like... Um, it looks like a custom character set for the font where there's a, you know, there's clearly, you know, some text mode um, to display, uh, you know, kind of not, is it like altitude near speed or some kind of representation? Yeah. And there's like a, like a rear view mirror kind of thing in the middle. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. I, well, I did take a look at this cause I was like, how did they get such a good frame rate? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really, I was amazed at how compared to pretty much any other simulator we're going to play or talk about here today. It's like, just amazing how responsive it is. You know, you turn the stick and your plane goes. Absolutely, yeah. 
and so I, you know, looking at all this, you know, we, the, it is, you know, it's Spartan. There's really, there's sky, you know, it's a, it's a cockpit view. You're mm-hmm. looking out straight ahead. You can't, you, know, you don't see any parts of the plane. You're just looking out front and, you know, you see the, the horizon and you know, the, the pixelated sun sure. and the, the green for the ground. And, but, you know, looking at it and I looked at it in with the idea of, you know, how could they possibly push this number of pixels, sure. you know, as you, as you roll, you've got full control, you've got full, you know, roll, dive, uh, climb, everything, whereas some of the other simulators are limited in roll. Um, but so, yeah, how could they possibly push this number of pixels to fill the screen, say, with, uh, you know, half of the left half of your, if you're in a, a big roll and, you know, the, the horizon is, you know, cutting this diagonal line across the screen, so you've got either the sky on the left or the ground on the right. How could they possibly fill that right. in, in the amount of time to get the frame rate up? And it turns out that they're hacking with a display list. Uh, they're pushing practically zero pixels, and so every at every screen they're updating and changing the display list for every scan line. And they've got some memory set up somewhere where there's like some bytes of the, of the line are like sky, and some bytes are are ground. Mm-hmm. And so at each point in the display list, they figure out where where that breakpoint is between sky and ground and then set the memory for that line such that the breakpoint hits at the right spot to get the horizon. Oh, that's awesome. Really, really clever. Essentially they're, they're not cha- they're not pushing any pixels right. at all. They're just changing the the location of the left and right position of the start of the that particular line. And then if you notice um be- you know when you you make your control input the you know kind of the angles don't change so all that all that math or, or whatever it is, it, it does, you know, if it, it's probably lookup tables or, or something yeah. else, that's really, that's really great. That's, I, I absolutely love this kind of stuff. So that to, to have a peek into how they did it, that's, that's really wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. It's uh it's graphics, it's antic mode C, which is uh, the two color, um, essentially graphics seven replacement. Okay. Um, so it's graphics, uh, graph, graphics six, I guess. Okay, would be gotcha. Basic. All right. And so it's all they need is, you know, this, like the sky is the background color and the ground is the only other color you have. Perfect. And, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the other part of this that, again, that, that holds true for all three of these titles is um, it's, it's fair to say in most certainly combat flight simulators, even, you know, the ones that kind of maybe skew a little bit towards the more arcadey kind of side, there's a lot of yanking and banking where, you know, you're, you're kind of always find yourself at a 90 degree bank or knife edge and yeah. kind of turning. But in this one, it, it won't let you do that unlimited. I mean, it, it you can certainly overstress your airplane and you get kind of a, um, you get a, a wicked kind of flicker where, um, a more modern simulators would simulate, uh, uh, like a you know a positive G like a blackout or a red out in some cases I'm trying to think of, of one that oh, does yeah. but certainly we're familiar with this where you know you try to pull ten G's and you know in Falcon or something like that it's gonna you know either your plane's gonna break or um, your pilot's not gonna be able to take it and uh, actually Red Red Baron does this where um, you know you'll kind of get that uh, you'll kind of get that fade to red or that uh, if you do some sort of extreme maneuver. Um, and I, I feel like all three of these simulators do a really good job of um, kind of coming from this place of energy management, where uh, you, it's not unlimited. If you know, if you bank, if you if you pitch up, you you know you're gonna you know your speed decays, and um, you know you become you know a, a much easier target for the opponent. So um, so just the fact that that all this is kind of rolled in there. Um, is pretty impressive, and uh, I think these are these are good ones to look at. And oh boy, what a that's a change of the display list for every scan line. That's that's really pretty incredible. But I suppose once 
that's done, um, it, it has to be, uh, it has to free up so much kind of CPU power for, yeah. for, for, yeah. for all those things we just mentioned where, um, you know, modeling kind of, uh, um, you know, collision and, uh, you know, the, the kind of change it, change that you get with the sun and, uh, kind of flight characteristics where, you know, you're, you're going way too fast or too slow or whatnot. So, but, uh, yeah, these are, these are good ones. Uh, I was actually very, I, I was, you know, kind of like, oh, geez, I knew Megalias had the head to head split screen deal, but the other two, I'm like, oh man, these are, you know, a little bit on the lame side. And I, I will say, give them a chance. You, you will be amazed yeah. <laughs> uh, at uh, this kind of, especially because they generally start out very easy. So if you choose, you know, novice rank and start with, you know, mission zero or mission one in whatever it is, it's a very straightforward task, but it's, it's kind of hard to put down. So I, I would say these are, these are good, especially for the time. I know Megalius was a little bit later in 83, but um, for 82 kind of microprose just kind of getting their feet underneath them with simulators. It's a, it's a great, uh, great way to start things off but they are essentially the same game just with different historical uh, you right, know it's yeah. really it's uh but i mean gosh same engine and you know good on them i'm sure it took very uh a very small amount of uh code change so they kind of got their money's worth out of so to speak the <laughs> same engine basically you know kind of put a, a different wrapper a different splash screen or whatever but yeah, uh, just generating they, new missions pre- for the same much. engine yeah. You know? yeah yes so uh Again. But yeah, I agree. It's a yeah. It's just the the playability that results from the fast frame rate. Yes. I think it's, yes. it's the kind of the key. And then it. you know compare the frame rate here to Flight Simulator Two, and it's just there's just right, no yeah. contest. I mean, this you really have in your hands a, a very controllable kind of playable simulator. And even even with how the um, the manner in which the guns or your, your weapons are are modeled, where um, you know, there's this notion of you, you kind of have to lead your target and, um, mm. you know, all that is really, it, it's really, it, it's impressive how far, especially given the year and the time that they were able to kind of do what they did. So yeah, definitely a, a thumbs up for me on these guys. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, um, so let's see. I think we're up to, do you want to do, you want to do, um, Ace of Aces before we talk about sure. the helicopter ones? Yeah, or? no, that, that's a logical way to do it, absolutely. Oh, okay, yeah, so, yeah. All right, so, yeah, so, so Ace of Aces was a really late game. Yeah. Uh, was it, 87 by Accolade? Yeah, so Accolade, one of my, my favorite studios. This is another one. Uh, talk about, you know, getting kind of immersed in a, a little bit of the, the history of Microprose and the studios or game kind of uh, development companies that... Uh, would kind of persist across different platforms and, you know, different, uh, occupy different kind of place in the timeline or have this, you know, some sort of really, really popular games. And I think uh, it was, I think people might remember Accolade more for their kind of sports titles. Like I remember uh, Hardball was just like a, just a really, really incredible game. A lot of, it was, and that was something we play with friends where, but there were a lot of uh, potential friendships uh, damaged over uh, having <sighs> sent in the left fielder to, and he had no pitches but the fat pitch. And yeah, sorry to get uh, far afield, but boy, hardball was just—it was so much fun. And that would go on to you know many different iterations, but just no one, no two, no A, B, C, or D, just hardball back in the sets, um, and that was accolade. But uh, just, did you do mean eighteen? Oh, well? and it's it mean eighteen. I, I encountered it on the Apple II GS, and just again a wonderful, wonderful game. So Accolade has, I mean, sport. They get sports games. They just really, 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 really good. Eight uh, bit, 
16-bit, you know, later yeah. on. And then they did, a, I think, in the kind of the PC realm, they did uh, quite a few racing games. And they, they actually did a little bit of everything where they, you know, kind of, uh, uh, kind of all things to all people kind of going on. And, uh, um, but they certainly, you can look back to their 8-bit roots and uh, one of the companies where uh, it was almost one of those kind of like Micropros where if you saw Accolade, certainly if it was a sports game or anything, you might go, you know what? Maybe the screenshots don't. Well, screenshots. Maybe the, the the box doesn't look great, or the review in the magazine isn't so good. But you know, Accolade was one of those places that you would kind of give them the benefit of the doubt because they had delivered kind of so many good titles. And uh, in in the case of Ace of Aces, I yeah, it just it's so interesting to me to look at uh, like eighty six and eighty seven where the ST was out. Right, ST came out in yeah, yeah eighty five. Yeah. So. You know, Atari had you know completely changed changed gears. You know, you had the the Tremel 130XE for better or for worse, um, <laughs> yeah. kind of put his stamp on it. It was very kind of different from the kind of design mechanic of the uh, prior Atari machines. And you know, I think you know the the ST, which I is impossible for me to comment on in, in any type of objective or non-biased way because I always wanted an ST. It had this amazing kind of extension of MIDI and all these kind of great things. And, <laughs> and really for, you know, whether it was overseas or in like music production or, you know, would kind of have this kind of, you know, life beyond Atari uh, of kind of right, wild, yeah. ranging from kind of wildly successful to um, kind of a niche market, kind of like, you know, Mac in the early kind of desktop publishing days did, um, where it kind of occupied this small space where the machines were really, really expensive, but they did this one thing really, really well. And, you know, people are like, this is the only computer that can do it. So, um, but with regard to the ST, I mean, it, it was out. And so to think that even that anyone, any company would still develop and publish for, the Atari 800 is, is a credit to, I suppose, the kind of the 8-bit presence in general. But 87, and there are a couple of games from 87 that really, really are, are, are fantastic. But or in certainly maybe the later years, 86, 87. But yeah. I just wonder if anybody ever saw them. Um, and, and in this case, Ace of Aces was one of those where this had. Um, I want to say the. Uh, I'm not 100% certain about this, but the. Uh, the title was released. This is a port, so you know C64 era. I want to say 84, 85. I think it was 85. Um, so then it, it got ported to the Atari by Artec. I want to think maybe Artec was the original developer in the C64 realm. But um, this is this is an amazing an amazing port. I, you, even if it if it wasn't a port, this is you know a, a quite a, a very very good game. It has elements that. Uh, you don't really see in any other Atari 8-bit simulator elements that you would be much more likely to see you know, several years later in kind of the early 90s or, or even, you know, kind of beyond where, um, you know, in the kind of PC DOS realm where you have things like mission briefings and uh, right, weapons yeah. loadout and uh, kind of a, 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 a very, um, you know, you have kind of almost cutscenes where, Instead of the micropose, you know, text, let's kind of dress it up and put like rainbow colored text or whatever. You actually have kind of a, you know, a, a graphical way of choosing, you know, like the, you load it up and you've got a um, kind of a burly guy with a, a leather jacket on and pointing to, you know, are you practicing or are you, you know, whatever the, the next one is kind of thing. So just in kind of the in-game elements that uh, were um, you know, kind of really pushing the Atari to its limits, whether it was disk space or, um, you know, kind of system RAM or, or whatnot. But this one is, um, it's really, really quite good. I will say uh, this is one 
you want to run on native hardware if possible. Uh, I encountered um, some big slowdowns with Altera that I, it was kind of hard to track, but I'm relatively certain that in a native sense, whatever trickery is used um, to kind of, again, get this thing that we're, we're talking so much about, this frame rate, um, it does seem to work much better on a native machine now. I mean, geez, these emulators are so good that maybe there's a combination of... Uh, of um, kind of boot parameters or, you know, things to be tweaked here or there. I know you can boost the speed or, you know, give it one megabyte of memory and all this. I didn't have uh, too much chance to uh, truly really try for that. But um, I'll, just, I'll just call attention to a few things uh, that, that really kind of distinguish Ace of Aces. You get, uh, you can look out the left and the right window and actually see the propeller spinning. So you pilot, uh, you know, a twin-engine kind of bomber aircraft and you get this great kind of very satisfying look where you can just, just like you can in, in later versions of Flight Simulator, where you can just bop back and forth and boom, there it is. Just the, just even the, the fact that the propeller is spinning out there and you can identify control surfaces and some different points of detail on the wing is, is really, really nice. Uh, you get an in-game map. So, you know, if you're over London and you're, you're headed here or there, you can kind of track your progress there, which, um, again, is not something that you really get on uh, on most other ones you have this um the you might look at the kind of initial kind of flight when you kind of your entry point into the game where you get this kind of weird uh it's uh, the color palette is is very very strange it's almost the the first thing i thought of was this is like four color cga on uh on like an ibm pc 5150 or something where it's that same sort of like cyan magenta kind of almost washed out kind of palette but you get this kind of digitized, uh, you know, almost, uh, you know, like uh, you see uh, um, like a megaphone or something kind of signaling, oh, you know, the, you know, the, the bombers are on their way or something that's scramble and, uh, you know, get the planes off the ground. And then once you do, it's kind of the same palette where the clouds are kind of a, a mix between white and kind of light purple and dark purple. But they they look like they really have some definition. You have... Uh, clouds that kind of look like clouds and um when you when you make movements in the cockpit you actually see the stick move and it's actually a a, a stick <laughs> yeah. that looks like it would be you know in any type of bomber or or kind of uh um era appropriate aircraft so there's a lot going on here and it's really it's done very very well uh this is one i would say absolutely check out if you can do it on native hardware or i would say don't don't let um, you know, it running slow kind of uh, just kind of boots you back to the beginning. Tr try to put some time into trying to get it to run um, a little bit faster and whatever type of uh, emulator or emulation kind of uh, uh, sense that you're, that you're using because it's really, it is really good, um, very detailed, and um, really gives you kind of the comprehensive, uh, really, simulation that uh, really you wouldn't see uh, until a couple years later in different hardware, different platforms. Um, anything from like V1 rockets to, um, you know, any, anything that would kind of be present. And I think this is in the, um, the, the title Ace of Aces is, uh, is reserved for, uh, I think it's the top, the top, you know, ace or shoots down the you know, most number of aircraft, whether like in the U S uh, world war two, I think that was, um, Pappy Boyington and, uh, certainly in, you know, world war one, it might've been, uh, you know, Manfred von Richthofen or something like that, but, um, it's it's just a, a comprehensive kind of soup to nuts 
flight sim that has much more in common with uh, titles that would come, you know, four or five years later than certainly any of the offerings that we saw in the in the eight bit realm. And I think 1987. The um, I'd love to know some of the tricks that they used to pull this off, but. By that point, there had been, you know, enough games or at least a few games that had really completely kind of blown the constraints of the games that had come a few years before that out of the water, um, whether that was, you know, just a really, really amazing soundtrack or, you know, some sort of uh, fine scrolling mechanic or something like this where 87, it's really the, the, the um you know, the Atari, but I mean, people pretty much stopped developing for it after that. So I guess yeah. the upside is a lot of these tricks were, were somewhat known or, you know, people had been banging their heads against the wall for three or four years going, you know, how can we do this? We know, you know, and had finally figured it out. So, um, but I have to say for a port, um, this is really pretty amazing. I, I'm sure there were, um, there had to be quite a bit done to kind of rewrite or re-roll a lot of the a lot of the code, um, you know, Rebecca Heinemann's talk from Kansas Fest and the Antic one in particular about racing destruction was so interesting. It was one of my favorites, but it was also very illuminating to find out that really, truly game logic code could be dropped from Apple II, Commodore, and Atari, and it should yeah. work. But it's the, certainly in Atari's case, the graphics hardware is so different, so powerful, so really different from the other two platforms that in this sense, I, I'm sure it was a, a kind of a, a Herculean effort to kind of port it um, over to the Atari. So, um, but can't say enough about this one. Really, um, this is just from a kind of a personal standpoint. This is one that I remember seeing ads for, and it had to be C64 ads or maybe friends bragging about having it or something. But uh, I remember when I think I, I remember you used to open up computer magazines to be this you know black and white super super small script where just have games or programs and starting with a it might be like agent seven you know agent usa and so on and so forth they have prices next to them 34.95 49.95 whatever it is i remember seeing this title and one of those and it being very close to the top of the alphabet and thinking wow that's really expensive or you know i can't believe this actually came out for the atari because it had seen it advertised for the other platforms so much and then by that point in kind of 87 was when we got a 2gs so um, I continued to use the Atari, but in kind of searching out software and everything, this one kind of slipped through the cracks where I'd kind of given up on, well, that's just, you know, something for the Commodore kids to have, but, um, but not for me. And, and if I had, uh, if it had maybe been a few years, you know, earlier or later, um, would have probably, you know, been able to really delve into this more to where I played it a lot, but boy, it's, it's really quite good. Uh, did you encounter this one, uh, growing up or? different platform or anything like that no i was onto the st by then and i didn't see it on the st even though it was released for the st apparently yeah that's right i would think this would be great on the st but i I have no no knowledge of it unfortunately yeah i don't remember seeing it and um i tried you know i tried playing it here and i could never get very far so when you're when you're flying can you only see the um see the clouds Do do you ever see any land or when you're doing bombing runs and stuff, do you just see the like a bomb site? Is that how? Yeah. It so I so it uh, it allows you to and, and this is going on memory here. It allows you to switch to kind of the um, you know to where you would actually get some sort of a bomb site, I believe, and it might be a, a snap to the map, but pretty much the flight environment is pretty much what you see is what you get. Um, you do get though. Um, you, know, you you do have to occasionally you know shoot down an airplane, and uh, it is kind of neat to see the. Uh, 
you know, the other plane kind of almost kind of dive, you know, in throughout the clouds. I mean, it's really, it's, it's somewhat static in that uh, you don't have, uh, um, you know, appearing and reappearing, but you definitely do get kind of a, a moving aircraft set against the clouds and they actually pull it off pretty well. It's uh, Yeah, I mean, and the clouds are worth talking about because there's like, it seems like there's three layers of these sort of puffy clouds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as you fly, you can see the layers kind of come towards you. And then when the one layer gets too close, it, it sort of the next layer behind it comes to the front and then there you get a, the a third layer that goes to the back you know so you always have these sort of three layers of different colored clouds it really gives you the sense of movement absolutely in the uh, in the same way i think it was um i don't know if it was uh, caverns of mars or it was one of the one of the titles that uh that the first star guy um talked about the guy that won that uh uh that contest um, that they, they interviewed and Fernando Herrera, there you go, oh. um, where this notion of you don't have to, you know, move the, the thing through space, you just have to move the background or, you know, make the, give the illusion of moving. And that's really the sense that I get here where um, clearly you get that sense of motion by just, you know, you said it, you know, taking your three layers and, and changing, yeah. but it's pretty effective. Um, yeah, that combined with you get enough kind of uh, input with the even the moving of the stick and the kind of being able to swap views that it really does pull off the illusion of uh, flying that really n- none of these other simulators really do in this way. Uh, so it does give that uh, kind of sense of motion and um, very, pretty impressive to, uh, to, re- to really have have kind of accomplished all this. And in 87, I have to imagine very few people saw it on the 8-bit. Right, uh, yeah. I think this was a, a pretty good seller for Accolade across, you know, different platforms and certainly is a, a game that is, uh, that is known about. But uh, I would imagine most of the 87 releases for the Atari are kind of fall into this category of, uh, you know, maybe, you know, pretty amazing just to, uh, to a dwindling audience, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was still being marketed, but, you know, half-heartedly. By yeah, in, indeed. Yeah. And uh, like I said, I'm 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 glad it's out there. I'm glad. You know, who knows what kinds of uh, what kinds of things are being discussed? Uh, you know, in you know boardrooms or whatever. You know, hey, should be released for the Atari? Should be released for the ST? Should be released for the Atari at all? And uh, the fact that you know anything was kind of pushed out in, in this way was uh, was quite good. So so yeah. But uh, I think that's all I have about that one. That one definitely would of all these. Simulators, maybe one that's certainly in the Atari realm, not maybe that well known, I would say. Check out for sure. So thanks to Chris, and we'll hear more. We'll hear part 2B coming up, probably not next episode, because they'll give us a break from flight simulators, but probably the episode after that, we'll finish up with part 2B, and we'll do the um, vertical takeoff simulators, and my favorite 8-bit flight simulator, F-15 Strike Eagle. It's worth talking a little bit more about the display list stuff from the um, Micropro simulators. It's really, really cool how they did that. Because, yeah, as I mentioned when we were talking to Chris, it's not fast enough to push that many pixels in order to fill the screen. And the response rate really is just is, is super fast. So they had to be using some sort of trick. And looking at the display list, I, I could see what they were doing. Because when I broke into the display list on the Atari 800 emulator, you can pop back to the monitor and you can list the display list and it'll print it out for you. And I printed it out and I thought it was graphics antic mode C, which is the two-color equivalent of graphics 7 plus. It's 160 by 192. So you're only getting the two colors, you're getting sky and ground. And like I mentioned, you know, there's no detail on the ground. You're just like, you got the sky, you got the ground, and and the only other feature is the sun, which is a big yellow player missile object. But for the single player games we're talking about, so 120 lines of graphics, the mode 
C is uh, 20 bytes per line because it's a two-color mode. So 20 bytes times 120 lines is 2,400 bytes of memory that you'd have to deal with if you were going to do this the hard way. So let's do some back-of-the-envelope calculations here. So if for every frame, 60th of a second, so we'll do we'll talk about NTSC. For every frame, you've got 114 machine cycles per line, and you have uh, 262 lines. So there's 29,868 machine cycles to use in one frame. That includes the vertical blank. That includes everything. If we were to brute force the screen, but what I mean there is if we unroll a loop and do like one load and then store, 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 so 2,400 stores, a brute force method of clearing the screen. Consult my 6502 clock cycle counts here. LDA with a constant is two cycles, and STA absolute address is four cycles. So that's four times 2,400, 9,600 cycles. Well, 9,602 cycles, because you have that initial LDA. And that's just to store a single color. That's not figuring out where the horizon is, and that's not changing the color uniform from the sky to ground. So that's like the bare minimum. That's the fastest we could possibly do it. But we already know that Antic steals a certain amount or certain percentage, and they're using player missile graphics, which also steals a few cycles. So looking at the Altera hardware reference manual, Avery Lee has a nice chart in here of all the graphics modes and stuff. Looks like 29 of the 114 cycles are stolen by the Antic. So that's 25%. Yeah, that steals about 7,400 cycles. So we're down to about 22,600 cycles. Uh, normally the vertical blank uses about 4,200 cycles as well. And you're going to need that processing to do other stuff, so we don't necessarily want to overwrite all the vertical blank usage. So we're talking maybe 18,000 cycles. And if we're using 9,000 of those just to clear the screen, then we're not going to have a lot of time to do anything else. And plus, that you know, that's just totally clearing the screen. That's not calculating the horizon. It's not doing any other management of anything. Clearly, we have to do something else. So if we back up for a second and think how we could actually do this without using the antic, you know, again, the total brute force way is to do some fill algorithm. But, you know, a flood fill is like super slow. I was trying to find this reference in analog, and I couldn't find the actual issue, but they had this, like, diamond-based flood fill that you could actually see drawing. I mean, it was an assembly language machine, but it just took so long that you could see this diamond expanding and then filling in all the things. So the advantage of that is that it'll fill in concave shapes. And here, we don't need to fill concave shapes. It'll at most be a convex polygon. So you can optimize this in a way that you don't have to have a general fill algorithm, which simplifies things a lot. You can go to a line-by-line fill, which will fill convex polygons. And if we think about the scene here, we're only talking about sky and ground. You know, there's no other detail visible on the ground or anything, and there's no clouds in the sky. So at most, we're talking about one color change. So think about it, we can actually optimize it into breaking it up into just a scan line fill, where the left half of the scan line will be one color, and then there might be a change where the horizon intersects, then it could be the other color. So sky, and then the horizon, and the ground. So you can use Bresenham's algorithm, which is a line drawing algorithm, to find that dividing line, find the position of that dividing line with where the horizon would be. And then the left half would be sky, and the right half would be ground, say. You know, in this two-color mode, there's eight bits per byte. Since it's, yeah, there's only two colors, you on or off, one or zero. So each byte could holds eight horizontal pixels. So let's look a little bit at this, on one of these algorithms that would be like a line fill with a color change in the middle. So if the change happens to fall at right between the bytes, you know, there's sky all the way on one byte, and then the next byte starts the ground, then you don't have to worry about changing any of the bit patterns in there. You just fill the whole left side with the color zero, say, for the sky, and the right side will be color one, so it'll be all FFs for the ground. So in seven out of eight times, you'd have this transition byte somewhere in the middle where the the sky and the ground cross at the horizon. So on the left side, you'll have the string of zeros filling in the sky, and then in this middle byte, this transition byte, say it the ground hits at the fifth pixel end. So you have this byte zero F where the first four pixels zero, 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 zero are the sky and then one, 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 one is the ground. And then the rest are FFs 
so at each scan line, you sort of loop through this and you figure out where the transition byte is and, you know, a little lookup table to figure out what that little transition byte would be. For each scan line you do this, you set up a pointer to the beginning of display memory and probably put it in zero page just because it's fast access with an indirect on the X register. Then you loop through on the left half, so this say the sky's on the left, loop through that store there, find out where the middle point is, store that transition byte, and then loop on the right side to do the ground. So you had a couple loads in stores to set up the zero page table. You have an initial value, either zero or FF for the ground or the sky color that's on the left. And you decrement the X register for the number of bytes on the left-hand side. Then you hit that midpoint byte where you store that. And then you set up the X register again with another initial value, decrement that as you fill the bytes in on the right. And then you do that for each scan line. So counting up all those machine cycles, it's... Um, 264 cycles per line. And if you've got 120 lines and you end up with 30,480 cycles, which is more than an entire frame's worth of cycles. So already you're talking about you know, having your frame rate. So if you're willing to do some self-modifying code, you can change that zero page indirect to the absolute indexed mode of the STA command, which nets you five cycles instead of six. But then there's a setup time for the self-modifying code where you actually have to stuff the address of the screen buffer into the code so that the STA command actually knows where to go. So you get an increase in the setup time, but a decrease of the actual loop. And I wrote out a little routine and I counted the cycles and it gives you slightly improved cycle time of 258 cycles per line. But that's still more than an entire frame's worth of cycles. So the next brute force thing to do is to try unrolling the loop. And so what this means is that for each possible intersection of the horizon with the screen, you've got to set up a string of commands that'll just do that without having to do any of the looping and decision-making. So there's 160 horizontal pixels and then there's 161 possible ways for each scan line to have the sky or ground distribution. So you can either have all sky, all ground, or 159 different ways where there's a single pixel change. This is an example of one of the fence post problems, because all sky would be like all 160 pixels set to bit zero. And then you can, if you think of like marching across, like there's one pixel ground on the right. And then 159 pixels of sky, and then there's two pixels of ground on the right, and 158 pixels, and march it over finally till there's 159 pixels of, of ground on the right, and one pixel of sky on the left, and then 160 pixels of ground. So that's 161 cases. So when you unroll these loops and try to set up this sort of set of loops, it, it takes one LDA command to load the accumulator, 20 store commands at an absolute address, and you need to set up this as a zero page indexed, because if you do try to use absolute indexed, you need to change like every single one of those STAs to point to memory locations because any one of these lines could go to any one of the screen locations. So you're looking at two cycles for the LDA and six for this each store command. So that's 122 cycles per line. So even all that optimization still results in almost 15,000 cycles just to draw the screen. And I think with all the other overhead you have to do, you're probably getting in the territory where you can't do this in a single frame. And then we got to think about memory space too, because you, you have 161 of these possible versions of these these lines. So that takes two bytes for the load and two bytes for each store. So that's 42 bytes per line of storage required. So you add up all that for all 161 different cases and you're looking at 7,900 bytes just for the storage space in this code. But really what we have to do is stop thinking like an Apple II programmer. What can we do with the antic? You know, we have this extra processor. What can we do to help this? Is it possible we don't have to push all these pixels? If we take stock again, what do we have here? We have the horizon splitting the screen into the sky and the ground at some angle. We've computed this using the Bresenham algorithm. We've computed where that break is. So yeah, on the sky to the left or the ground to the right or vice versa. But if we start thinking about the antic, there's only one color change per line. This is all like line-oriented stuff. There's not any real horizontal information other than that single color change. And one thing the antic can do is it can put the display anywhere in memory. 
And additionally, what it can do is it can put each line of the display anywhere in memory. So what if we set up a line in memory that has 20 bytes of the sky color, so 20 bytes of zeros, and then 20 bytes of the ground? And then what if we tell the antic to position the 20 bytes needed for mode C somewhere along that 40-byte line? Using that, we can get a break between the sky and the ground at any byte boundary we want. We can use a load memory scan, set it at byte zero of that 40-byte line, and we get all sky. If we set it at byte one, we get 19 bytes of sky and one byte of ground. Byte two, we get we get 18 bytes of sky and two bytes of ground. If we set it to byte 20, we get 20 bytes of ground. So with those 40 bytes, we've handled all the possible ca- cases of sky and ground intersection as long as they happen at a byte transition. So maybe you can see where this is going. If we have another row of 40 bytes, this time we have 20 bytes of sky, the 21st byte has one bit of sky and seven bits of ground, and then the remaining 19 bytes are ground. So for this row of of 40 bytes in memory, we can set the sky to ground intersection at any place, any transition byte that needs one bit of sky and seven bits of ground. So that can happen at the first byte, the second byte, the tenth byte. So we can handle anything that needs a byte transition where it's got that single byte of sky or single bit of sky and seven bits of ground. So we can set up another row of 40 bytes where that transition byte has two bits of sky and six bits of ground. So if we do that seven times, we can handle any case of the sky being on the left, a transition byte, and the ground being on the right. And that means we can handle any case where the plane is banking to the right. But we still need to handle the case of the plane banking to the left. So that means on the screen, the ground might appear first and then the sky. So we got to set up another row of 40 bytes where we have 20 bytes of ground and then 20 bytes of sky. And another row where there's 20 bytes of ground, a transition byte where there's one bit of ground and seven bits of sky, and then 19 bytes of sky. And dot, 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 seven of those. So in total, we need 640 bytes to handle any possible case of sky and ground or ground and sky at any bit transition of the horizon. And that's all great, but now we've got to set up the display list and we've got to modify it. So rewriting the display list takes 120 load store pairs because there are 120 lines in the display list you've got to modify. And each of those load store pairs is going to take four instructions, a load and store of the high byte and a load and store of the low byte of the memory location of each particular line that you're trying to reference. So each load is two cycles, each store is four cycles, stored at absolute address. So that's six cycles per load store. You need two load stores for every line. So that's 12 cycles for every line, and there's 120 lines. So that's 1,440 cycles to change the whole screen to whatever arbitrary angle of the horizon that you need. So we've made essentially an order of magnitude improvement. The best we got was that case of about 15,000 cycles in the unrolled loop where we sort of brute forced that color change down to 1,440 cycles. And so this is the advantage of the antic. We've just given ourselves an order of magnitude improvement in the best possible brute force algorithm that we could find. So take that, Apple II people. Phew, well, that takes us to the end of 1981. Next episode, I'll talk about my first 1982 game. I think probably Getaway, but I haven't quite decided yet. I've been really looking forward to 1982 because this is when I would get into the games that I really remember. And thanks to Chris Crawford's articles in Byte and Dairy Atari being released, you know, the programmer documentation is now out there a bit more, and it's easier for programmers to take advantage of some of the capabilities that the Atari had. So yeah, super excited about starting 1982 here next episode. Thanks to the reference in the Atari Connection, we're listening now to a pokey version of Kraftwerk's Das Modal by Andre Kidai. Apologize for your pronunciation all the way around. My Polish, as you know, is a work in progress, and... My German, I say that like that's a thing. I know about 10 words in German. I one time ordered Applestrasse at a restaurant instead of Appleschule. So that'll give you some idea. As always, love to get feedback. Uh, Twitter, I'm at Atari 8 Bit Games. Send me an email, feedback at playermissile.com. 
you feel like leaving a review over at iTunes, that'd be great. Always helps people find the show. I'm on the Throwback Network, which is a collection of great retro-themed podcasts. That's at throwbacknetwork.net. You can also visit gamebygamepodcast.com, which has a big collection of, strangely enough, game-by-game-style podcasts, of which I am one. Shinto of the Jaguar Game by Game podcast put that together. And boy, he's got a great professional-sounding podcast going. I can only imagine the amount of time it takes him to put that together. It takes me long enough to do my unscripted ramblings. He's got like a broadcast-quality show going, so definitely check that out. As a reminder, if you've got any, any programs you'd like me to feature for the listener-written program section, just send me an email with a link to a webpage or GitHub or something that describes your, your project. Looking forward to hearing from you, and I will talk to you next episode.